all of the pregnancy hormones that you were producing are in the placenta. So if you want to look at it as like a slow tapering off, because as soon as that baby's out, your body stops producing those hormones. And so now you're getting it kind of like on a slow drip after the birth, a lot of iron and, and stem cells. I'm Ayla Cuenca, and this is the Lifestylist Podcast. Well, here we go. You are in for a major treat today, y'all. This is episode 408, Birth Keeper, a doula's guide to natural childbearing with Ayla Cuenca. And heads up, if you're a man and the title throws you off, I highly encourage you to stick with us as Ayla's wisdom definitely applies to all people who have kids or plan to have kids. This is a powerful episode. You can find show notes, links, and complete transcripts for this conversation at lukestory.com slash birthkeeper. Here's a little bit about our guest. Ayla Cuenca has lived and traveled throughout the United States and several countries, accumulating knowledge and expertise in her field that spans over a decade. Her work strives to connect women, parents, and children through the scope of conception, birth, and parenting. As a birth guide, she draws on a blend of ancient traditions and evidence-based information to bring custom-tailored support to every individual, no matter where they are in their birth process. As a teacher, birth guide, and visual storyteller, Ayla offers natural birth classes, prenatal and postpartum guidance consultations, Reiki energy healing, documentary birth photography, and highly individualized birth doula support. She offers this support in person and online so that everyone anywhere in the world has the opportunity for empowered birth education and guidance. And I've got to say, I've been taking her current online course myself, and it's incredible. So I highly recommend it for anyone looking to have kids. And for those of you who wish to check out Ayla's work after you hear this episode, she's offered a generous 20% discount off her course using the code LUKE20. The site link for you is lukestory.com slash Ayla. That's E-Y-L-A, lukestory.com slash Ayla. And again, the code is Luke20 for 20% off her birthing course. And for those of you that like to know what you're about to get into, here's a quick topic breakdown. Ayla's beautiful journey of becoming a birth keeper and lactation consultant, how having a doula can affect the outcome of a birth, the different types of birth workers and how they fit together, the definition of a birth keeper and how it compares to a doula, We also talk about some of the shockingly invasive procedures that often occur in medical birth, placenta encapsulation and why it's such a powerful practice, delayed cord clamping in a baby's first breath, the little-known side effects of having a night nurse, the staggering difference between a hospital birth and the way early humans gave birth, how she has adapted to the industry of birth during the pandemic, and her thoughts on the current attack on individual medical autonomy that has long existed in the birth process the rise of home birth in these uncertain times. And finally, we do a deep dive on the Bradley method and the empowering effect it has on men as fathers and so much more in this expansive conversation. I am so excited to share this episode. And if by the end you feel the same way, please share with some parents-to-be so we can help bring as many healthy, happy babies as possible into this rapidly changing world. Enjoy Ayla Cuenca on the Lifestylist Podcast. Thank you so much for making the time to come see me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really a funny thing happened for you listeners. Um, there was a bit of a snafu in our booking. And so I'm over at, at our house, just about to jump in the ice bath. 
take a little break. And then I get your text like, Hey, I'm here at the studio. And I was like, studio, what podcast today? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> so I don't think, I don't know if that's ever happened. So I'm really glad we were still able to, to get it in. And yeah. you weren't like, dude, I only have an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. How's, uh, how's Austin been treating you? It's been great. I've been enjoying the cold weather. I mean, I love, I love the desert. I love cold weather and, um, yeah, good food. Really good food. We got into some delicious meals. Downtown Austin has great food. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. That's the benefit of having kind of a culturally liberal, artistic city in the middle of a bunch of rednecks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it is. I mean, you get like outside of downtown Austin and yeah. there's nothing to eat unless you prefer like GMO, glyphosate and, uh, and canola oil. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, down, downtown Austin is a great place for culture, mm-hmm. food, art, music, vintage I mean, you, stores, vintage stores. Oh my God, yeah. I, I went back to high school. I, I used to go to these um, Goodwill donation centers and just seek out all of these designer pieces. And then I created my own little store in downtown Santa Cruz. I would oh, sell really? vintage. Yeah. For years, I was like going around and through college and it's all since gone. I've kept the best pieces there in my closet now, but yeah, I had a whole thing. So I like to go down memory lane. That's cool. Very good. Vintage. Yeah. I, I used to, uh, I used to do quite a lot of thrift store shopping myself. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the, I guess it was in the 2000, early 2000s. Yeah. I was pretty obsessed. I drive yeah. out to the suburbs of LA, like East LA was great. Oh I went through this phase of, um, so when the movie Swingers was out, yeah. you know, and there was like all this um, kind of resurgence of swing music and rockabilly and stuff like that. So I went through this brief sort of Guido 50s leisure suit period. Totally. It was like the crepe button-ups. <laughs> yeah, totally, yeah, totally. So good. And I've got to East LA and find that stuff, you know, and like in all yeah. the Latino thrift stores and no, shit. No, the Valley has had great vintage. I grew up in North Hollywood. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, LA girl. And then moved to Santa Cruz when I was 10. So, but there uh, was like a going back and forth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And now you're in uh, Miami, right? Yeah. Okay. I just realized we're actually making a podcast and I'm just sitting here shooting the shit. There is so much to cover, but I didn't get, don't really get a chance to get to know someone for a few minutes. And this is that getting to know someone. Totally. This is the small talk that proceeds talking about birth. It's a big talk. Dun, 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 dun. So I think I found you on Instagram. And um, for those not following you yet, we'll put a link to your Instagram in the show notes. Um, and we're going to call the show notes today, by the way, lukestory.com slash birth. And everyone can find any links and her website and social and any books or references we talk about. What made you want to become a doula? And may- maybe define what a doula is for those listening. It might be kind of nebulous for people that sure. are outside of those circles. What is it? How'd you get into helping people make babies? So on a really basic level. A doula is a physical and emotional support person who's trained in normal birth, natural, normal birth, meaning not high intervention, not complicated, just kind of the natural unfolding of birth. So they hold space. We hold space for couples and families, women who want support during the pregnancy and then through the actual birth itself, through labor, and then sometimes postpartum. And the reason I wanted to get into that was because I had been photographing birth for some time and felt that where I really wanted to be was in um, that very specific field um, with the woman and her partner and whoever was there, if there was a medical attendant like a midwife or an OB at the time, and um, wanted to support that process. You know, and as a photographer, I very much fly on the wall. You know, I had a lot of experience in photography. That's what I did before I started doing this work, but more in the commercial world at Milk Studios. Um, And so I, you know, I wanted to be 
a space holder in that way. And so then I did a training and um, pretty quickly realized that the training um, fell short in so many ways. And most doula trainings do, you know, it's like, these are the very basic ways that you hold space for this woman, this family. And um, at a certain point, you kind of take your hands off. And I was like, "Mm." I started noticing a lot of women were getting into situations where they couldn't advocate for themselves. And then the doula was not really assisting with advocating. And then the partner had no idea how to advocate. And so there was this huge deficit. And that's when I got into the education component and certified as a Bradley instructor, the Bradley method, and started teaching everything about unmedicated birth, which led me down the path of exposing the medical industrial complex. (laughs) Yeah. When you start researching natural birth, obviously inherent to that research is going to be, well, what's the other way people have begun to do it? And it's kind of treacherous. I've done a couple uh, shows on it. Um, I've had um, Yolanda Norris Clark on and um, who was super solid. And I didn't find her perspective to be controversial because we're just talking about like the way humans have been having babies for a very long time. But I had another guest, uh, Janice Barcelo. Yeah. And she, I mean, I vibed with her, but she was very controversial because her perspective on medical birth is tied to her perspective that it's essentially a satanic ritual. Yeah. And I I think that was, I don't know, I didn't get everyone's feedback, but I know for some that could be a little difficult to contextualize. But based on the things she shared with me, I don't know that I could couch it any other way. Yeah. You know, I remember doing the intro for that and I was like, hey, don't throw the baby out of the bathwater if some of her perspective is you know, that leans into that realm uh, is off-putting to you, like, just leave that alone. And she's stating medical facts about things like the dangers of ultrasound and all kinds of practices, circumcision, all kinds of things that I think any rational person could could look at objectively and say, yeah, there's there's a better way to do it. Of course. So, funny thing I've noticed. Yeah. I noticed a lot of funny things. Me too. One of them is, when I look at your Instagram... And there's all your beautiful, beautiful photography, by the way, of, of birthing taking place. I find myself a little squeamish. Mm-hmm. And this is in not even hospital births, but just, you know, in the, in the uh, kiddie pool, you know, however we're doing this, right? Yeah. I, and I look at that and I think, why am I squeamish about that? And it's, it's almost the same kind of reaction I have to uh, like hunting animals, right? And like mm. gutting an animal, like just any kind of blood and guts or seeing bodily fluids and the insides of things and parts that you don't normally see and right. all of that. And it kind of brings me to this realization of how, and I'm sure that many people share this um, reaction with me, but how disconnected we are from not only the process of, of birth, but also of death. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's all hidden away behind closed doors in the funeral home, in the hospital. And, you know, like, why would I get like squeamish looking at a baby coming out of a woman's body and all of the blood and fluids and things like that? Like, why would that look kind of ew to me? It's just, it makes me just realize there's something wrong with me. (laughs) Like, I got to fix this. Um, When you started photographing birth was it did you have any kind of visceral reaction like that or did did it just all feel you know normal and natural and so I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with anyone I would say that there's there's an opportunity right Um, because we have all been programmed 
through Hollywood, right? So the woman's pregnant. She there's a there's like a very minimal birth scene, and then she's home with the baby, and it's like cleaned up. So there are a lot of missing pieces of this process that were programmed with from the beginning of time. You know, watching films, being told stories, children, older siblings aren't invited into birth, so they never really learn. And so it's just it makes a lot of sense. And of course, like you said, death is tucked away. Nobody talks about the defecation that happens right before the moment of death or these these lucid moments and um, urination and vomit and the release of bodily fluids. No one, you know, that's not depicted in film. You know, it's like, <laughs> so. Right, even when you think about like an action movie and somebody gets shot, like you don't see them shitting their pants. <laughs> no. I mean? I mean, even if it's. Or foaming at the mouth. Right. You know, right. all the things that, that do happen or even just bleeding through the nose and you know, just the, the different, you know, yeah, urination. So when you started, when you started being present for births and shooting it, did, I mean, did you have to take some deep breaths and kind of acclimate yourself to it or did it come naturally just in terms of the experience itself? It came naturally. And I had been doing photography work for some time before birth photography that was very much about the body and these these biological functions, like so more anatomical photography. So I had already been exposed to that. And um, and it all made sense to me. It all makes so much sense. And, you know, um, feces, urination, vomit, birth, uh, menstruation. If I were to see someone's arm break, I would probably pass out and vomit because that is not something that the body is supposed to do. So my nervous system can't handle it. <laughs> but I could watch birth all day you know, because it's something that the body is meant to do. So there is, there is no um, disconnect for me there. From my animal body, there is no disconnect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. How does having a doula, working with a doula, generally affect the outcome of birth? Generally, I would say that, you know, some of the statistics out there are that 61% of women who hire a doula have an unmedicated birth or their chances are much higher, you know, um, they feel, you know, a large percentage of women feel that their birth was positive if they had a doula. A lot of women say that they'll, if they have a doula postpartum, they're more likely to breastfeed, you know, that maybe with the second one they had a doula and they didn't with the first one and they were able to breastfeed the second one because of the support they had. Just like the few visits they had of someone coming to their home and holding space gave them the courage, the opportunity to breastfeed. So yeah, I, I would say that it can really impact um, the outcome based on what you want, right? If you set a goal with her, the doula or him, then... Are there male doulas? There's one in Puerto Rico. Oh, really? I've heard of, so I included him just now. But um, yeah, it can really, it can impact, you know, have an impact in that way. What I'm finding is that there are a lot of doulas out there that tend to support the the industrial comp like the medical industrial complex like they actually because they have very little birth education and very little education surrounding the physiological process and um, you know legal matters and rights <laughs> human rights they actually fall short in the advocacy that I think is what women are looking for and why they actually hire a doula. So you mentioned that you were trained in the Bradley method and that you're now teaching others in this method? Yeah, so I I, um, I taught the Bradley method for six years and then I started my own method called Uncovering Birth. Oh, really? Yeah, which is so much based in Bradley. Of I love this method. It's all, it, it's traditionally called husband coach childbirth, but it's really partnered coach childbirth. It teaches the partner to be your doula, to be, to, to create that masculine container. 
Oh, wow. And it sounds like I need to take this trip. <laughs> and it, yeah, I would love it. Um, and it is all about, so the Bradley is all about unmedicated birth. So it's like all the facts on fentanyl, all the facts on lidocaine and how it affects the mother, how it affects the baby. You know, it's very much like a crash course in obstetrics if you want to look at it that way. And so what I've added in my method and what I've shifted is really more focus on the placenta. Um, I've brought in the conversation of vaccines and really focusing on informed consent, you know, not only throughout the pregnancy, but then postpartum, because it's like everyone hyper-focuses on the birth. And then there's just this gap when it comes to those first few weeks, you know, um, yeah. and what the container looks like and how it shifts for the woman and her partner um, those first few weeks. So, So this is one method. What are some of the other kind of types of doulas is there are there other categories or other trainings that are prevalent yeah i mean the most popular one in the u.s is dona doulas of north america it's an international organization but it's like a three-day training and you just basically learn like how to do an intake with a client um where you're bound you know how to draw boundaries like what your scope of practice is and you know how to communicate properly with the staff the medical staff and then like you know, how to bill your client. <laughs> um, so, you know, that doula training, like I did it and then I was like, this is like useless. Um, and then I just started pulling, you know, apprenticing midwives. Um, so just like working more in the field. I trained with Dr. Bradley um, and then through my education and just being at births all the time was how I started to shift what I offer. So, you know, my contracts, for example, with my clients are very specific. And they're like, I don't do what a doula would normally do. I get much more involved in this way. Like you have to commit to an education for birth or else we can't work together. We need to speak the same language. Um, like I, you know, I get very much involved in their life um, and their journey. And then some doulas are, you know, pretty hands-off. So it, it depends, you know, and there's, mm -hmm. there's somebody for everyone out there. In an ideal scenario with you uh, working with a client, at what point pre or post-pregnancy would you kind of onboard with that family and, and start to work with them? Whenever they find me. So whenever they find me, it's perfect for them. Sometimes it's like eight weeks pregnant. They're ready just to create that container. And sometimes it's right before the birth. They realize that this is what they need. And we, we make it work. Um, and then we do a lot more postpartum, you know, so. So you're there supporting the mother and helping to educate them about breastfeeding and different yeah. ways to care for their newborn, et cetera. Yeah. I'm a lactation counselor as well. And that's really where my passion is. is really? Yeah. Tell me about, uh, tell me about lactation. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I saw uh, something on your Instagram about like night nurses, ruin your milk supply your milk supply yeah. yeah and i you know you forgive me like not only am i just like a dude but i've not had a baby yet yeah. so i'm i'm fairly ignorant around some of this stuff sure um so there's you know there's this thing that a lot of women feel that they have to do and it's usually because someone told them that they need to do it and it's hire a night nurse which is a person that comes and lives in your home and maybe a guest room or something and at night they'll manage the baby so that the mother's not waking up at night so she can get rest and um and then you know re-meet her baby in the morning um so maybe from like 8 a.m to like 7 a.m sorry 8 p.m to like 7 a.m the babies with the night nurse. Um, or sometimes the night nurse will come in periodically to wake up the mother so that she can breastfeed and then take the baby away again to the other room so that the mother can rest. However, I 
there is this initiation process that happens, right? Biologically, psychospiritually, between the mother and the baby where they need to meet each other. And this rite of passage that happens for the woman where she learns her baby's vocabulary, her baby's cues, body language, their very specific needs and how they communicate. And when we, you know, take that away for all those hours in the night, um, we start to create this codependence with this other person in that field, right? And in that constellation and that family. And I've seen some of my clients after the night nurse leaves, you know, like month three, the woman feels very confused and disoriented in the, in the nighttime. Like she doesn't have that language and that ability to, and the confidence to care for the baby in the same way. Um, so it creates this codependence and the lack of contact with, with the mother um, or with the baby and the mother that will decrease her milk supply. The body is intelligent. It says the more contact I have with this infant, the more milk I need to produce. The less contact I have, the less milk I'm producing. So the body is just taking cues from the mother and the contact. So that's why I really don't promote strollers. I promote only baby wearing. And this is all really for her health and for her milk supply so that she has minimal obstacles when it comes to breastfeeding. Like we already have society as a whole, the frameworks, what we can control in our home. I really want to give them all those tools. Like what are all the things that we can do so that you can just have all the milk you need. Your baby has all the milk you need and you're unobstructed. I think by now most of us know that minerals are important, but it's really tough to know which minerals to take without knowing what you need. And mineral imbalance is a huge issue, so guesswork is pretty sketchy. Wouldn't it be great to know not only what minerals you need and which mineral levels are too high? Well, I recently found a very cool way to accurately test all of that and take the guesswork and wasted supplement spending out of the equation. I'm talking about upgraded formulas, upgraded hair tests, and consultation. It's really fast and easy to do. You just cut a couple small hair samples, mail it in, and then book your consultation, during which one of their expert staff explains your mineral levels and even your heavy metal toxicity. We just sent in my wife Allison's test and got some good and not so good news. She was luckily very low in lead and mercury, which is awesome, but we also found high aluminum, which is less than ideal. Luckily, her mineral levels look super solid overall, but her magnesium levels were a bit high and her selenium a bit low. So with that accurate information at hand, we did a heavy metals detox protocol to get that aluminum down and also determined that she does not need to supplement magnesium for the time being, but that it would do her some good to up her selenium intake. And not only does upgraded formulas have you covered on the test and consultation, but they also happen to make the best absorbed nano minerals I've ever found. Getting your minerals right can sort out hidden deficiencies that are affecting thyroid, adrenal, and many other systems in your body. So I highly recommend you check out the test and consultation at upgradedformulas.com. Now you can also save 15% off your first purchase by using the code Luke at checkout. That link again is upgradedformulas.com. That's so interesting because when I've 
thought about the prospect of having a baby on immediately because I really, I really need my sleep. I mean, yeah. everyone likes to sleep, but I just truly am a train wreck when I don't get sleep. And so that was one of the biggest obstacles to the idea of having kids for me, actually, it was just like, I don't know if I can handle not sleeping for an extended period. So I've always kind of had in my head, oh, we'll bring someone in to help and take the baby all night, you know, so that we don't have to deal with it. Yeah. I don't think my wife shares that that fear. She's good to go. But yeah. yeah, that's interesting. But you know, to that point, I think I always think of things evolutionarily for some reason. I just my mind just always goes back, well, how did we used to do it? And if you think about a hunter-gatherer tribe, yeah. right? 50, 60 people going back, whatever, 15,000 years or so. And since the beginning of humans, probably, I I picture that uh, a woman gives birth and that she's spending some intimate time with that baby throughout the days and nights, but that that baby's also sort of getting passed around to other women in the tribe and yeah. is bonding to multiple people. Yeah. Would, would that, if that's true, would that principle not apply to a, a night nurse or any other women or, or, or men even that happen to be in the inner circle of that family? Yeah. I mean, that's just a, like if there were multi-generation, a multi-generational household might support that, right? Which some countries, some cultures still have, perhaps in India, where you have a few aunts, cousins, maybe a grandmother, so all living in one house. So that's how little girls learn about breastfeeding is by watching these women and their family and their household. And when they get to that, the information is passed down. Um, but that stays within the nuclear family. And the mother is always the one to breastfeed. In the hunter-gatherer times, like there was communal breastfeeding. Typically women were having children at the same time, or they were, there was always someone else who was also breastfeeding. So that support could happen. Oh, I um, see. Right. However, the frame, like the societal framework was so different that a woman did not need to worry about like, oh, well, I have to like answer these emails and like do this and go back to work. And I have these meetings and like I have Pilates class and I like, so they weren't, so it's just, the, the, I mean, right. I got to post on Instagram, shit, I didn't post today. And, it, and it's that, that duality that starts to raise the cortisol levels and the adrenaline and can also inhibit the milk production and, and that split that's created. And this, this mourning, this deep mourning of an identity, you know, once we're breastfeeding, once we're staying up at night, once we're not going to the thing that everyone else is going to, once the relationships have shifted, we start to go through this mourning process. And I don't know that the women in these other societies were experiencing that. Um, so that, that actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess the whole context of like a woman's life back then would have been totally different. It was to, you know? it was to serve her family and to serve the community. That was mm -hmm. what she was doing, you know, and through that serving herself and feeling the fulfillment. So now the way we access fulfillment is not through that, is not so much through serving the family or serving the community. Right. Yeah, that's um, something I've looked at recently is how this warped, I don't know, it's like just, it's like a warp in the fabric of our culture that if a woman elects to be a homemaker and have babies and stay home yeah. and is like under the, under the, um, the title of like housewife, that that's somehow frowned upon or is demeaning or of lower value yeah. in the hierarchy of our sort of social structure. Right. And the women that I know that are in that role and in, in the community here where I live, um, I mean, I, like have nothing but so much respect for them. I mean, the work that they're doing in that, yeah, in in birthing and raising their babies. I mean, I look at them and they're so devoted and so so beautiful to observe them in that role that they've 
chosen for themselves. Yeah. And to demean that in any way is just super twisted. Yeah. You know? And there's, all, well, there's just this like, like belligerent feminist ideology that like doing that is somehow like Stockholm syndrome that like we <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? like you couldn't have done it on your own volition. Yeah. Right? Like, like you, like you, you believe that this is like your full potential, oh, man. you know, that's sad. Yeah. And, and some people might say, no, we've gone past that, but I don't really think we have. Wow. That's interesting. Um, back to the breastfeeding, uh, a friend of mine, Matt Blackburn did a podcast recently on, uh, tongue-tied mm -hmm. and this one was on there talking about um this is something i think I'd, i mean i'd never heard of it but i've never sought to breastfeed myself obviously <laughs> but she was talking about how um many babies are born tongue-tied and you know there's something with the expansion of their mouth and their palate that makes breastfeeding super painful because the baby has a much harder time getting the milk out is that something that you're aware of yeah so it's there's you can have a lip tie or a tongue tie. So the oh, frenulum, okay. you know, here or here under the tongue could be really tight. And you know, when I look in babies' mouths, they typically look pretty tight. You know, and over time, over the days and the weeks, it starts to expand. Um, however, now most IBCLCs, lactation consultants, they'll look in the mouth and say, oh, "You're having pain breastfeeding. This frenulum looks tight. Just go get a laser surgery for the baby and have it separated. You know, no big deal, one and done or whatever." Um, However, what I notice is that women just don't have the technique, like their baby is not getting a deep enough latch. And so they're feeling the pain or the woman is supplementing with a pacifier or perhaps an artificial nipple with you know, a bottle, for example. And so the baby's latch just becomes naturally more narrow. So when it goes to breastfeed, it's painful for the woman. So the first thing I always ask when I get to their house, because I, I can only do in-home visits, like need to see where they're breastfeeding to know it's so it's holistic you know i can't mm -hmm. just do it on zoom or something um and i usually ask you know are you using a pacifier and they'll say yeah i'm like let's take it away for three days see what happens and it usually shifts um so that frenulum the tongue tie thing it's i think it's over diagnosed um and often it's it's a technique thing and it's a lot of other factors you know and an emotional energetic rejection of breastfeeding can affect the woman's like desire and pain threshold as well. Right. I imagine it's something that one would have to really surrender into. Of course. Right. Because it's just, you know, you're living your best life. You're not used to that sort of activity. You get pregnant, you give birth, and then all of a sudden, like, you're now a milk machine. Totally. 24-7. It's got to be a huge change. I mean, just, again, observing the, the new moms that I know yeah. here. And I mean, we'll be at a, I was at a gathering a couple of days ago for a baby blessing, actually. And I, we're there three hours and the baby had just turned one. Uh, my, my friend's, uh, um, uh, Devana is her baby and, um, and Albert, Devana Albert, shout out to my, to my homies there. And I mean, I wasn't paying that much attention, but there were numerous times that I looked up and she was breastfeeding her baby nature mm -hmm. in, in that short period of time, yeah. you know? And I was like, oh, this kind of, this is a thing. Yeah. This is ongoing. It yeah. isn't like when you feed your dogs, like twice a day I feed Cookie, you know, <laughs> in between a couple of treats, but she's not coming to me continually, you know, multiple times in a three hour span of like, hey, feed me. Totally. It's breastfeeding on demand. And most of those feedings are not for the milk, they're for touchstone. They're for the baby to access really? the touchstone for them to um, regulate their nervous system and for them to just bond with the baby. I mean, how many times do you reach over to your partner and just, you just want to like rub her hand constantly, you know, you just want to hug her. You just want to look in her eyes. Sometimes you just want to kiss, right? That's 
what they do when they're breastfeeding. It's just a mode of connection and communication. And so, yeah, they breastfeed. When you talked about the sort of the practice of it in some women, are they getting it like ergonomically wrong to make sometimes, it painful? Yeah, sometimes they'll just kind of put the baby there. And so the baby just gets the end of the nipple, whereas the baby's mouth needs to open wide. The head should come back so that the jaw opens. The breast should be sandwiched and it should really be put like the, the areola should really go deep into the mouth. Oh, okay. You know? And, um, and that's why women have so much pain or cracked nipples, or it feels really sore. They, every time the baby latches, they, they wince, you know, and that's not normal. So most women give up because they're like, fuck this. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> oh my God. Like I've never felt anything more painful. And I understand. I'm, I'm repeatedly reminded how blessed I am, uh, to be a guy in so many ways. It's like the things women, especially mothers go through. I'm like, God bless my mom, you know? Wow. Oh my God. I am, right. And I then am. you become like a little, in some cases like mine, you know, you make it through childhood and then you become a wild ass teenager. Totally. You know? There's a whole other set of uh, responsibilities that come with that. How important is um, skin to skin contact? You know, you mentioned you're, you're not yeah. into strollers. You want, you want the mother carrying the baby. A friend of mine um, in LA, I forget the name of the brand, but try to find it for the show notes, but he created this, you know, kind of baby harness that yeah. is skin on skin. Cool. Right. There's yeah. no fabric in between. How much of a difference does that make? In the- I think that's great. I mean, what happens is the chemical skin imprinting, you know, where the hormones are exchanged between the mother and the baby and the baby and the father. So I always like to say, you know, the mother can breastfeed, you know, do her thing. And then the father can take um, the baby in the carrier and go on a walk for 20 minutes. You know, and that's the way that everyone gets that bonding. You know, partners really don't play a role in breastfeeding. Like there is nothing for men to do when it comes to breastfeeding except create the container. Right. Food, shelter, and safety. It's really all they're supposed to be providing when it comes yeah. to breastfeeding. Go get them, girl. Hang in there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Let me know and, if you need me. And then she and with that support and that ease and that surrender, she will be able to do what she needs to do and it will become second nature. And she'll be able to walk and breastfeed in a few weeks. She'll be able to have the baby in the carrier and walk. You'll be able to go to wherever, you know, out walk around downtown and breastfeed while you're and it does not, it's not a thing, you know. So we there has to be this initiation process and it has to be supported so that she can get to that place of confidence and ease and be breastfeeding at one year old at a party like it's no thing. Yeah. You know, do women go through uh, because of our aversion and sort of puritanical relationship to nudity and body parts and things? Do, do women typically go through difficulty in, you know, the privacy of breastfeeding? Like yeah. in my squad of people, I mean, there's just titties out everywhere. People are breastfeeding. You don't even give it a second glance, but yeah. I imagine some women are more, uh, less comfortable with that. Yeah, totally. And, and that really has to do a lot with the partner as well, like their comfort level, because there are some partners that, I mean, even in my classes, they'll be like, she can't breast, like, cause I'll say, you know, if you're at lunch, don't hi- go hide in your hot car to breastfeed, just like breastfeed where you need, like make it easy. What is going to be the easiest for you? And that's what you should do, you know? And they're like, in public, you know, so I think it has a lot to do with the partner as well. You know, and if the woman does want to cover up or use something, you know, she, she can, she should, whatever it is, but feeling that you need to hide to care for other people at a cafe or care for other people, caretake, that's, you know, that's, we have to get away from that because then you're sacrificing your own comfort, <laughs> your baby's well-being, so that other people around you are not uncomfortable. So there's a little bit of like, 
and a reflection that has to happen there, you know? How common is it for women to have difficulty producing uh, adequate quantities of milk? It depends on the type of birth they had. Oh, really? Is, yeah, like the level of trauma <laughs> um, during really? the birth. Wow. Um, you know, whether or not they received medication can affect that as well. How long were they separated from the baby after the birth? You know, if they're at a hospital, for example. Um, and then are they co-sleeping or not co-sleeping, right? So if the baby is sleeping with you in the room after the birth, you're having more skin-to-skin -skin contact, more chemical skin imprinting, your body is going to produce more. Um, what's the woman's stress level? What's her relationship like with her partner? Um, is her cortisol you know, through the roof or is it at a good level um, that's going to affect her? her supply is she trying to lose too much weight after the birth too quickly right some people kind of go back into that like paleo like you know whatever diets people yeah, go into their yeah, diets you yeah. know and um i believe there is a really specific diet that supports your milk supply and so sometimes losing too much body fat will affect that um so there are so many factors and it's 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 tricky because so many things that seem like they're healthy and normal and part of how women just should be are really not congruent with what supports your milk supply and a healthy postpartum state of mind. What are some of the dietary recommendations you have to ensure that there's plenty of milk? Um, high level of protein, animal protein, roughly 80 grams a day and high fat, animal fat. Wow. Yeah. And are there any... Um, <laughs> I remember I, I found out a few years ago that I was not breastfed and I was, you know, it was like, very disappointing. I don't blame my mom. I mean, you know, it was 1970 and it's, yeah. you know, they told her you didn't have to just give them totally, formula and totally. that was easier and more comfortable for her. So, you know, it's what it is, but totally. Um, she was I, in alignment. She was in alignment. I imagine back then I turned, you know, I turned out okay. Although sometimes I do wonder, I might've been a little smarter. You know? <laughs> I think that too. When I think about what happened to me after my birth, I'm like, I could have, I had potential. But <laughs> I have, I have looked, yeah, right. But I have looked into uh, baby formula for friends. I, I did have one friend uh, back in LA that just didn't produce any milk. Uh -huh. And so they're like, Luke, what's the good formula? And I, and I did some research on it and I was shocked to find that even a couple of years ago, I mean, this was horrific stuff. It's like soybean oil yeah. and just gnarly, yeah. gnarly stuff. Um, are there any alternatives to natural breast milk that are viable at this point? Well, there's like a, this is one hierarchy that one could consider is obviously breast milk being at the top feeding on demand and then breast milk from a bottle, that's your own, and then donor breast milk from another woman and then raw goat's milk. Um, and then you could do homemade formulas like from Dr. Weston Price, you know, that's a mixture of bone broth and raw goat's milk and a few other things. And then you could go into commercial grade formula. They make goat or sheep formulas that come from Germany and things like that, that have very little additives. Right. Not made with a bunch of GMO seed oils and stuff. Oh my God, no, it's, it's, it's criminal. <laughs> thank you for, thank you for that hierarchy though. That's good. That's a, that's something good to put in the show notes, you know, yeah. and you know, and I'll just add for this conversation for parents that have already given birth and they hear some of the things we're going to get into. Don't feel ashamed. I mean, we're all like figuring this out as we totally. go. And totally. also if anyone wants to do things differently, like go nuts. I'm just into exploring um, experts in the fields of, the optimal human experience, being yeah. as healthy and happy and fulfilled as is possible. But perfectionism, you know, as I'm sure you've discovered in, in your work, perfectionism 
can also turn into a neurosis, right? <laughs> Where now you now you're worse off than if you just lived your best life. I think I came to this with food some time ago, right? Like you know, like boomeranging back from different diet fads right. and stuff, and eventually just like God, the neurosis of being so. Um, orthorexic or borderline orthorexic is probably worse for someone than just living your best life and doing the best you can. Well, how can we know the framework? Like how can we dance and play within the framework if we just never learn the framework? You know, like some of my clients will say, I feel guilty because, you know, now my partner is taking the baby at night so I can get more sleep and it's not sleeping with me constantly. And I'm like, why is that bad? (laughs) You know, like, well, because remember, and you know, one time we had a conversation, you said that like, she should be with me all night. And I'm like, no, I told you that this would be optimal and that, um, you know, but for your sleep is the best, like you need to sleep, right? But this would be optimal. And then within that framework, what works for you? And you can plan and you can decide before the birth how this is going to be. But once the baby's there and you meet them, you then know what you both need. But if I just tell you like, yeah, put the baby in a crib in another room, it's all good. You're not even going to know what's possible beyond that. So I give you kind of like the full spectrum. And then within that, you make an informed choice that is aligned with your innermost desire and needs. I like that. You a know? gradient. It's a gradient. Yeah. But I have, yeah. to, I have to give the extremes so that a gradient can be explored. But if I just say like, whatever feels right at the time, no one... Well, what are the options of what could feel right at the time? Like, yeah, right. no. Right. Yeah. Another thing about, um, I'm a huge EMF safety advocate. Uh-huh. And um, <laughs> one of the worst things that takes place in, uh, in babies' lives are baby monitors that oh are, God. they produce so much Wi-Fi or so much radiation, so much RF, and people put their baby monitor. And again, no shame to the parents that do that, but hey, get an EMF meter and test that monitor. Now they make some wired ones and stuff. Um, which I I think I even have one of those on my site. But yeah, there's just so many things. Again, like take something like an EMF producing baby monitor. If that's the only thing you can do, right? It's maybe better than your baby jumping out of the crib or choking or whatever happens to babies when they're left alone. But even just moving it across the room by 10 feet exponentially lessens the amount of radiation that that kid's getting exposed to. And so many women are breastfeeding or holding their babies or the baby's napping and their cell phones are there, the computers. I mean, there's so much around them. And that's also why I say baby, baby wear, you know, or have your baby next to you and it naps or like, you know, some people get blackout curtains for the nursery. They have a crib, they have the cameras and there's babies like in a chamber. And I'm like, if you want this baby to integrate, it should you know, run the vacuum when it's sleeping, like let the dog bark, like do not desensitize, like let it be light when it sleeps. And that's how they start getting on a natural rhythm with you and sleep. And you don't have to sleep train them. If you just integrate them into your routine, then, you know, you'll get that. Oh, that's interesting. You'll get that natural rhythm you're looking for rather than like having to hire a specialist to sleep train, you know, how, how will people the ba- do that? Oh yeah. Oh, wow. oh yeah. There's a whole market there, but, um, and when, you know, these baby monitors, like if your baby's in your care, in the sling with you, or it's napping next to you while you're doing your things, you don't need to have those cameras. And if it sleeps with you, you don't need to have those cameras. Right. You, you just know? have a camera on yourself. You just, it's just you. And then your maternal instinct <laughs> is getting fine tuned every single moment. And you become that. You can start to hear. I mean, th- this is wild. Uh, this has been the account of so many women, myself included, where I've been in another location, like geolocation for my child and my milk will have like started to come down. I'll feel what's called the letdown. It's like this warm tingle that starts here and then milk begins to release. And like my mom will text me and say, oh, your daughter's crying for you. 
you know, I've been at births, you know, when I was still going to births very often and still breastfeeding and she'd be like, should I drive over to the hospital and, you know, you can breastfeed? And I'm like, yeah, bring her over. You know, I would feel it. Interesting. And so other women talk about that too. And, you know, and, and it's, yeah. So you have that built in like radar, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, but, yeah. but there's a whole industry that thinks we need to be dependent on these, you know, apparatus. I bet that radar is super strong too. Just think about the very common phenomenon of you think of your friend, ding, they text you, right? I mean, that's just, you're not even in someone's field remotely as close as you would be with your own offspring. Totally. As I, I mean, I imagine that being the case. Yeah. The interconnectivity of, you know, the, um, the ethers. Yes. I'm going to take a minute to share some of my top herbs and superfoods, then tell you how you can easily incorporate them into your diet. First up is beets. These are a great source of nitrate, which provides a natural way to increase nitric oxide and blood flow in the body. This is why beets are my number one workout hack. Next, blueberries, which are rich in vitamin K, manganese, and vitamin C. Then we've got acai, which is rich in vitamins A, C, and E. And of course, pomegranate, which aids in digestion and is high in vitamin K and C. Next up is raspberries, rich in vitamin C and manganese. They also contain a powerful and diverse amount of antioxidant protection and anti-inflammatory phytonutrients. Then we've got strawberries, which are of course delicious and also loaded with vitamin C. Next up, cranberries, which support urinary tract health and digestion. Next, we've got cordyceps. This is a medicinal mushroom with incredibly strong adaptogenic qualities. Then we've got Siberian ginseng. This is another adaptogen found in Asia. It's also been popular in Russia for the past 50 years as a hormones balancing herb. Then we've got reishi mushroom, another powerful adaptogen that promotes an increase in energy while calming your nervous system at the same time. And finally, one of my lesser known favorites, rhodiola, which promotes physical endurance and increases mental clarity and focus. So that's a pretty robust list, right? Well, how are you going to get all that into your daily diet? Super easy. Everything I just listed is in the Organifi Red Juice drink blend. All you have to do is throw a scoop of this in some spring water and you've got an incredible powerhouse herbal superfood elixir. To get your hands on some of the Organifi Red Juice, go to Organifi.com slash Lifestylist and use the code Lifestylist for a generous 20% off any item in the store. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I, Organifi with an I, Organifi.com slash Lifestylist, and the code there is also Lifestylist. Uh, so you have a kid? I do. You have one daughter? Yeah. Oh, wow. Were you already a doula by the time you yeah. gave birth I was. I was photographing births and I had just done my doula training. And, and did was, you did you have like a badass doula that uh, assisted you with your birth? Yes, her father. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> he um, wow. He did the Bradley training. And so he was, we didn't have a doula, like, you know, we didn't, we just had a midwife and him. So it was the three of us. And, um, yeah, he was, yeah, he was badass. Wow. He really rocked it. Uh, my labor so cool. started. So I went, I was nine days after my due date and my midwife said, all right, you got to start getting things going. Cause state of Florida, if not by, if by day 10, you haven't gone into labor, like we have to transfer you to a hospital. And I was like, <laughs> no way, no way. So I did all the natural induction techniques I could think of. And then finally started my own labor at home. And then, um, yeah, the one I, it was pretty slow. Friday night, you know, I let him sleep. Always let him sleep. Like you do your thing until you really absolutely need them because they're the best when they're 
well rested. So I let him sleep. And then I can attest to that. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I was like, I need him for, for game time right yeah. now. I'm good. Yeah. Um, and so all through Saturday, you know, we went out walking, we went swimming, we did all kinds of things. And I was contracting like every 10 minutes for most of the day. Um, yeah. And then Sunday afternoon, she was finally, she was born. At home. At home. Yeah. And when you had your baby at home and I guess like maybe you could kind of Give us what your hierarchy in terms of the most optimal home setting would be in terms of like, is it in one of these little tubs and water or in a bed or? Oh, no, it's, it's, does wherever. it matter? It doesn't matter. Okay. It doesn't matter. You just need running water. Um, what do you need the running water for? You know, just washing things. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> washing your hands. If I'm you totally need to. I realize how clueless I am. <laughs> so that's the only thing the midwife will check. She'll do a home visit and be like, do you have running water? Okay, we're good. We can do the home birth here. Um, yeah, I mean, I had a tub and I was in it for a while. You know, the warm water really takes the edge off of the contractions and the discomfort and you become buoyant and you take pressure off the joints and you can move and float. But you hit a certain point at the end of first stage labor, you know, once it starts to get really active and you're contracting every four minutes, the hormones start shifting, you're getting ready to transition, you're getting ready to go into the pushing phase of this process and you start to go into deep surrender, or you should. And for me personally, and what I see with my, my, my clients and my students is that you want to start grounding and anchoring. And in the water, I was like, this is really not grounding, you know, and we had a raised um, elevation in our home. And so there was space underneath the foundation anyway. So there was, I just felt too high to, to really ground. So I started crawling around much like a, a little dog or a cat would and just trying to find where I felt the most secure and grounded. And it was like in my bed burrowed with like 10,000 pillows and a down comforter and like darkness. Oh, Wow. But I had this idea, like, I'll birth in the water and it'll be like those Russian films that I, you know, that I've watched of women birthing in tide pools. And I was like, I got to get out of here. Like, this is interesting. not, or I didn't feel safe. And you mentioned pushing and I've heard some kind of home birth advocates and I guess doulas uh, essentially talk about you shouldn't have to push. Like, that's a medical birth thing. Like, you just, yeah. what's, what's the deal with? assisting by, you know, contracting and pushing versus relaxing and surrendering into the allowance. So typically women are medicated on an epidural. 99% of women who birth in hospitals are on an epidural. Which is essentially a painkiller? Yeah. So it's actually, um, it's, it, it numbs you from basically the belly button down. There's um, like a flexible needle called a twahi needle that is threaded into the dural space of the spine. And they inject you on a, you know, they're on a drip of lidocaine and fentanyl. And so women don't feel, don't. That, does, that already does not sound like a good idea. I'm sorry. Like, Yeah, I know. Okay, go on, um, go on. Um, and so the woman doesn't, you know, some women say like, I could still feel enough. I had a very low drip. I, I still knew when it was you know, time to push, but for the most part, women don't. That's if the epidural works properly. Some women only get numb in one side and they can still feel the other side. And some epidurals don't work for certain women. And, you know, so- if it's working as it should, the woman is not supposed to feel anything and she is instructed on when to push because she doesn't know when to. Oh, I see. And so now it's just kind of the protocol and it's just the way things are done. Like, all right. And that's what we see in films. Like, go, 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 push, but you know, and 
with an unmedicated birth, you start to feel this sensation after you go through transition. Transition is a very short shifting of gears of the control center. All the hormones shift and the woman starts to feel expulsive contractions, similar to a bowel movement. There's a lot of pressure on the rectum from the baby's head because the baby's low. So she'll start kind of, her breathing will change, right? Instead of doing this long rhythmic, more yogic breathing, she goes into this bearing down. Much like, you know, next time you're on the toilet, just notice your breathing. You know, that's really the same. So she'll start to bear down. She'll start to hold her breath and she'll start to say like, I feel pressure. Like I just, you know, midwife will just say, okay, release, you know, just follow your breath, whatever you need to do. And so the woman will naturally feel into that and guide her, you know, guide it, guide her baby out in whatever way she needs to. Um, yeah. So this idea of coached pushing, you know, some of my clients say like, if, if, if I'm struggling, if you see me struggling, if I'm not doing it right, just tell me what to do. And we're like, okay, we will. And then they're fine. They don't need, you know, they don't need much. And what about the position of a woman giving birth? I've also heard something about, um, you know, that it's unnatural for a woman to be on her back with her legs spread, that that's kind of come out of the industrial medical complex, but that women in nature, a natural woman is going to squat or be on her hands and knees. There's other ways. Yeah. I like to teach about all the possible positions, like learn them all, imagine yourself in all of them, and then kind of throw it out and follow your body in labor. And that's it. And be in a setting and an environment. Cause you asked about environments, like just be in an environment where you have the freedom to go into any type of position you want to go into. And if you have a birth attendant, right, if it's a midwife, um, she might say, you know, try this, like your baby's posterior, meaning your baby's facing this way, what we call sunny side up. So it might be good for you to try hands and knees. So sometimes we'll make suggestions if we know certain things that are anatomically, um, you know, specific for that woman. Um, However, yeah, lying on your back is from the knock them out, drag them out era. Knock the mother out, drag the baby out. You know, where it was just, she's typically on nitrous, she's on her back and the the doctor, the OB can, um, you know, give her an episiotomy, get the forceps in, take the baby out and, you know, do what they need to do. So that's just how we're, you know, we're used to doing things in the hospital. That position of lying on the back, it's called McRoberts. And that can be really helpful if the baby's head is caught on the pubic bone. And so to help the baby drop down and out, we'll put the woman on her back. Sometimes we'll put something really hard and flat under her back to really assist. And it's so uncomfortable for her, but we'll kind of unhook the pubic bone and then she can go into her squad and do her thing, whatever she oh, needs interesting. to do. So. And how do you determine what position the baby's in? You know, that's something I always find fascinating. It's like, oh, we had to do this or that because the baby was upside down or, you know, something was wrong just... In, in the way that they were situated in the birth canal. Yeah, so you can feel from the outside through palpating. Um, you can observe the woman, you know, what position is she spending most of her labor in? Like, is she mostly on hands and knees because everything else doesn't feel good? That baby might be posterior. If she wants, the midwife can do a vaginal exam just to feel the baby's head and see like oh, really? where things they are positioned. They can go in there and just be like, hey. Yeah, in a hospital, they'll do them like every 45 minutes just to like see how much a woman is dilated, you know, which is not necessary. However, you know, in a home birth setting or a birth center or whatever it is, the midwife can can say, hey, you know, it's you've been pushing for a while. We're not making too much progress. Would you like me to check and see? Maybe the cervix is still kind of on the baby's head, what we call a cervical lip. Um, 
So the midwife might feel in there, say, oh yeah, there is a cervical lip, meaning that one side of the cervix is all the way down and they're still a little stuck here. So then we'll have the woman bring up her, her left leg, you know, and try pushing with her left leg to see if she can get that lip up. And so, you know, it's, it, it can be really collaborative and not um, forced or invasive. Um, so that's one of the, you know, that's one of the beautiful things about having a midwife that you love and trust and, you know, to guide you to hold space for you. And of course you can do free birth without an attendant, you know, and that's a whole other, a whole other world. Um, you know, so, um, the different options would be just full normalized Western medical birth, right? Then uh, I'm just going to run through this and tell me where I don't have it right. Um, then there would be a hospital birth where perhaps you have a midwife and or a doula present at the hospital. Mm -hmm. Then there would be a home birth where you have either or both a midwife and a doula. Mm-hmm. When we're defining free birth or wild birth, is that where it's just the woman and her partner and whoever else she feels like having there, but there mm-hmm. isn't a quote unquote professional right. birthing assistant there? Yeah. Is, do I have that yeah. framework? And there are right? some there are some women who are um, birth keepers where they've done different types of trainings um, to assist with the process but they don't consider themselves to be medical providers. And so that might be someone who's out of free birth or a woman might just be like, I'm here with my partner alone or I'm alone and my body's just going to do what my body does. Wow. You know? Oh my God. It just, it shows me how indoctrinated we are because even being a man, when I think about like a wild birth, I immediately go like, it's going to go wrong. You know, the woman's going to die. Like you can't go this way. And thinking about just animals and, and humans kind of in the wild. Yeah. I mean, yeah, things, I guess, did and, and do go wrong. Yeah, um, in any setting. Right? But we've also been doing that for freaking ever. Since the beginning. Right? And just, I don't know, it's, I was watching a video a couple of weeks ago of, I think it was, yeah, it was an elephant giving birth. Yeah. And it's just, it was so interesting. I think they were, I don't know if they were all females. Maybe they were, but they kind of like, encircled the pregnant elephant mm-hmm. and then boom the elephant just comes out hits the ground yeah. and they all just kind of you know stay in this protective circle and then after one or two minutes the baby elephant gets up and just starts cruising yeah they all start trumpeting too oh okay yeah i don't remember that part but i just thought wow that's so fascinating like they just make it look so easy and you think oh no it's gonna get hurt when it hits the ground or they're gonna accidentally stomp it or so you know, all of just... these mammals when they're born um they're at that stage where they could walk or you know and they'll breastfeed for a few months sometimes depending a few weeks to like cats it's like six weeks um you know uh, gorillas it's five years. <laughs> so they, they're all at different stages, but they can, they can, um, they can walk and kind of fend for themselves spatially. Whereas a human infant is not at that stage until it's around nine months old. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. So you can't just drop your baby on the ground. No, let it go. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it, but it's, you're going to, it's okay if it happens. <laughs> and what, uh, what's the general difference between a doula and a midwife? For for people listening that oh, aren't yeah. that familiar with some of the terminology, yeah, the training's totally different. I mean, a a, a midwife is a medical professor professional that can um, offer prenatal support. Um, they attend the birth. Um, they can offer different types of 
medical support like Pitocin or antibiotics. Uh, you know, can they, they do that at a home birth mm-hmm. as well, like a licensed midwife? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Um, they can, you know, each state is so different. Some midwives, um, some states don't allow midwives to even carry Pitocin. It's just, they make it really difficult. Um, but Pitocin can be helpful in postpartum hemorrhage. So why not give that to a midwife? Um, but that's a whole other conversation. What is postpartum hemorrhage? Um, just when the mother will continue to bleed at the wound site where the placenta detached and the placenta and the uterus is not contracting back as quickly and the wound site is still very open, she may continue to lose some more blood. And so traditionally, a woman would just take a piece of the placenta and swallow it to contract the uterus. Really? Yeah. So now we have is that because the placenta has some magical cocktail of it hormones. It has some magical in there? cocktail and it'll wow. it'll stop the bleeding. What? Or take a piece of the umbilical cord, swallow it, or keep it in the mouth. Really? Um, yeah, there's a great book called The Placenta, The Hidden Chakra, and it talks all about um, these traditional practices. However, you know, in the modern world, um, we have Pitocin, which typically is what a woman, you know, a midwife might inject into your leg if she notices there's an excessive amount of bleeding happening and usually does the trick. Um, so yeah, a doula is not a medical professional. I mean, doulas do not treat, diagnose anything. They don't, they should not be doing vaginal exams. They should not be taking blood pressure or, or, you know, saying your baby's breach, your baby's like, they shouldn't do any of that. That's not within the scope of practice. I mean, they can, but they have to have a good contract <laughs> to make right. sure that right. there's no liability there. You know? okay. But that's really not the training that doulas get. Got it. Okay. And um, you mentioned Pitocin. And yeah. I remember when I interviewed Janice Barcelo, um, I mean, that was like a hardcore interview. Far and out. the stuff she was sharing was like, I listened was, to it. You did? It yeah. was terrifying. I mean, I'm just like, oh my God. So then I had to work through this whole thing of rather than focusing my energy on being afraid of having a medical birth, of just leaning into the prospect and the vision of having a beautifully uncomplicated home birth yeah. when, when the time comes. But when yeah. she talked about Pitocin, if I remember correctly, um, she was very anti-Pitocin because of its um, tendency to interrupt the bonding between mm-hmm. a mother and the newborn Yeah, because it essentially shunts the oxytocin. Right you know, response and relationship between them. Do you know anything about some yeah. of the downside of Pitocin? Would you agree with that? Or do yeah. I have that right? So that everyone knows Pitocin is a synthetic form of oxytocin, which we naturally produce, which is what we call the love hormone. It's released during orgasm. It's released when we kiss. It's released when we hug for longer than 10 seconds. Um, it's released at birth and when we breastfeed. And so when we're given Pitocin in the labor process, then the body's like, oh, I don't got to produce my own oxytocin. So it does interrupt a very natural, essential process for the mother's labor to unfold. Um, and then, of course, I, I've no—I mean, I've noticed this that most women who receive pitocin to maybe induce their labor or to give their contractions more umph end up having postpartum hemorrhage after oh, the birth, interesting. and then more pitocin is given to them. Ah, as such, as the pharmaceutical industrial complex, right? It's like create a problem and you have a solution for it. It's usually not the same thing though. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And then what about, uh, what's your perspective on ultrasounds? It seems like women are very attached to this practice and being an EMF guy, (laughs) ultrasounds don't seem like a good idea at all. I mean, it's basically like a little radar dish that you're putting on your abdomen and and it creates... um, sound right? right that is extremely loud to that little growing baby yeah yeah we and people always say oh the baby's being difficult it turns away every time we get close like 
like I've heard people say that she's a diva. She turns away whenever we get the, you know, the probe near her. And I'm like, it's because it sounds like cats and nails on a chalkboard. You know, that's what they're experiencing. Um, Jim West has a great compilation of studies um, that were done in China ultrasound studies done on humans. We don't have them here in the States. Um, and so I really recommend people look into that. The, oh, cool. The only we'll, studies, uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. The studies we have here are done on lesser mammals and mice and things like that. But what oh, okay. we found is that when the pregnant mice are exposed to ultrasound wave technology, that the fetuses, their, their brains don't form in the same way. And what ends up happening are a variety of cephalic disorders and you know, cognitive dysfunction. And, um, you know, some people will say, well, my child was never vaccinated and I did all the right things and I ate all the right things and I took all the stuff and I had the home birth and still really high on the spectrum of autism. And so Jim West alludes to ultrasound really being the main culprit for this epidemic. Interesting. Wow. I didn't even know that part. Huh. And what would be some of the risks or potential risks of not ever doing one ultrasound and just so you asked about it. this attachment to this process and mm-hmm. you know when we become pregnant it you know we're just so conditioned unfortunately to believe that now there's something pathological going on and that we have to make sure everything's okay like is the baby okay am i okay you know get the blood work um go see a doc i have to go see a doctor right like that's who's going to tell me what's up and um and then when you go to get that ultrasound they'll just schedule you for more and they'll say oh you know your did you know your uterus is tilted this way or that way oh you have a history of fibroids we're going to need to do more ultrasounds and really keep an eye on this so now you're in this field that like something could potentially go wrong and it feels responsible to constantly look at the baby throughout the pregnancy to make sure that everything is okay. And I've had clients in the past, um, you know, an ultrasound is done and then they find something and they're like, we're monitoring it. And then the baby's born and that thing is not there. So what has happened is that there's just been this field of anxiety created, right, throughout the pregnancy, which affect the, affected the mother, the baby, the entire Family constellation is now affected by this anxiety around this potential issue that ended up not even existing. So ultrasound can create an issue when there is no issue. And also, you know, I I would ask, I always ask people, like, if you find something in that ultrasound, do you have to really ask yourself, like, would you terminate the pregnancy over that information? Oh, shit. You know, and if not, then why would you do it? Right. Because there are risks associated with ultrasound. So if that ultrasound discovered uh, a defect, for example. Yeah, like Down syndrome. Okay, so they can determine that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So so you're at whatever stage, you're you're, you're four months pregnant, you get an ultrasound and they're like, hey, we think your baby's going to have Down syndrome. Like you, you have to be prepared be willing to get an abortion at that point or else you're having the baby. So like, that's a really good question. Yeah. If there are risks associated with ultrasounds, what you're going to find out is that you're going to terminate that baby if you're not. Right. Which, you know, like some people say, well, I want to know, because if that's the case, then I want to prepare, like maybe financially prepare. Oh, for okay. that, right? Okay. Or that's a little more rearrange, humane, <laughs> rearrange things. Or yeah, I, I'm. I wouldn't do that. We're we're not we're not equipped for that. 
they're being honest with themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that that's their choice, whatever it is. So you you this is just an invitation to ask yourself, what are your intentions behind doing this invasive procedure that has negative side effects for the fetus? And for you potentially, like psychologically and emotionally, this could have really negative effects. So why are you doing it? And some people are like, I want to see the baby, you know, this is how they connect with the baby. So there are other methods of connecting with the fetus, right? Through meditation, through conversation, through journaling. You know, there are other ways you can connect with your fetus. It's not through exposing them <laughs> to ultrasound wave technology. Right. right. So just because understanding your motives for these invasive procedures is really what this is about. I'm generally a pretty easygoing guy, but I do have one huge pet peeve in the health and wellness industry, which is the fact that people spend so much energy on diet fads while ignoring something that's just as bad as junk food, in my opinion. I'm talking about junk light, blue flickering light to be specific. Blue light, meaning any light that looks white at night, trashes your melatonin levels and thus your sleep. But melatonin does way more than help you sleep. Melatonin is the body's most powerful antioxidant, and it's also your most potent endogenous anti-cancer molecule. And light flicker sucks because it can cause neurological issues like headaches, migraines, and even photosensitive epilepsy. And if you want to know if you've got flicker, you can easily test the flicker of your bulbs by shooting a short slow-motion video. If, when you watch it back, the light flashes on and off, you've got flicker. Not good, but fixable. Lucky for us, our homies over at Blue Blocks made some bulbs that only emit red light. So zero blue, green, yellow, or orange light. Just pure red, which is optimal for melatonin production, and their bulbs don't flicker. Additionally, the Lumi sleep bulbs do not run on Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, which means very low EMF readings, if any at all. These bulbs are just badass. They did it right. I use them strategically all over our house, mostly in table lamps, since light source positioning is also important. Think of your nighttime lighting as a campfire. Warm light at eye level, not overhead, if possible. This is what we've evolved to do. So if you're ready to ditch your blue light, get over to blueblocks.com lifestylist and use the coupon code lifestylist to save 15%. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com slash lifestylist. And the code is also lifestylist. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm thinking about Allison. Like, um, you know, she's a shaman and she's tuning into these other worlds all the time. That happened this morning, you know, and I was like, oh, wow, I have to take plant medicine, you know, I think at least so far to go to those places. And then, yeah, I'm there. But um, thinking about about her specifically, I mean, I feel like if she was pregnant, she would be totally tuned in to this baby inside her and yeah. have this working, ongoing relationship with it and probably not have to have something on a TV screen that's like, oh, there it is. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this is available to all women. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, what about, I think it seems that a lot of women elect have ultrasounds to find out the sex. Is that? Mm-hmm. The, the gender? You could do that through blood work too. Depends you on your, your flavor of invasion. <laughs> Got it. Well, I think this this topic in general, you know, the Pitocin, the epidural, like all of these kind of touch points of a medicalized birth, and maybe just because I've covered it in other shows, just zooming out, I think many of us are just largely indoctrinated into perceiving pregnancy as an illness itself. Right. Right? Yeah. Where it's like, if you think about it, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you think about it, a woman that whose body is able to get pregnant 
is probably the healthiest it could possibly be because if she wasn't, nature wouldn't let, let her get pregnant. Right. You know, it's right. like, yeah. to me, when I see a pregnant woman, I'm like, that's a healthy ass woman, totally. like just vibrant and full of energy and hormones and just like just vibrating with life force. Yeah. So radiant. It's the opposite of being sick yet. Right. We think, oh, I'm pregnant. Okay, we got to book this appointments and start getting checked out and ultrasounds yeah. and blood tests and start preparing for the worst. It's right. kind of like we're, I know everything. I mean, everything this- is structured around this cash cow, which is a newly pregnant woman, and this is the segue. This is the gateway to pharma's entire <laughs> track. You know, right. it starts at conception. So if the woman is locked in that way it's from two, the beginning. two new customers. The mom and it's their baby. two new customers. Right? Totally. Right. Maybe three, depending on if you want to include the partner. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. And how do you help? I guess if women are seeking you out, they're, they're probably existing to some degree outside of that paradigm. But how do you help women or couples see that like they have everything they need that, that, creation or God has provided them with the tools and resources within themselves to procreate successfully. It's a layered process. So it usually begins with dispelling fears around the pregnancy, the birth, even like early parenting for both the, you know, the woman and her partner. Um, You know, so it's dispelling myths and then it goes into how normal natural physiological birth works, right? And then it goes into understanding medications and understanding the system um, without vilifying it to the point that people shut down, right? There's a fine line because I get approached by the most um, conventionally oriented people to the most like out there (laughs) um, in terms of alternative approaches when, and both are right both are, there's no right and wrong. Both are right because it comes from their own personal choice. So, um, but I, I, it, it's this kind of delicate dance of making sure that it remains accessible and it is not an opinion. <laughs> you know, um, these things are very real and a lot, it's evidence-based. So then once we go through that layer, then it's about having them join together and um, the masculine, whoever's holding the space for them. Sometimes it's the woman's mother. If she's birthing alone, if she's done IUI and or IVF, and this is like her solo choice and her mother is her birth partner, her mother will be the one or her sister, her best friend or her doula. That's the one holding the masculine space for her or it's the husband, whatever it is. And then it goes into that polarity and understanding how that container is created and how do you want it to look and how are you willing to, how much are you willing to protect her and how much are you willing to create a structure for her to surrender so it's many many layers of getting them to see that there are so many options and it all comes down to whatever is in alignment with their deepest desires and their deepest needs around this rite of passage i think that's a really open-minded and and healthy perspective as someone who's so i mean i don't i don't like to think of myself as anti anything just pro what i want you yeah. know i don't always successfully achieve that perspective but i've been working through myself of just you know like they say worry is praying for what you don't want right and and thinking about having a kid it's like i'm just terrified of hospitals and doctors and like the whole thing i don't want any part of it but I find myself giving energy to that, right? You know, like being against that, and and it, one could say from a metaphysical point of view that I'm 
more likely to manifest that experience totally. by focusing on that instead of just like, cool, that's there. Let people that feel comfortable with that do that. We're just leaning into yeah. For an you, experience knowing that this is more a, ideal. Yeah. Knowing this, like anyone who says, I don't want this or I do want this, I want them to be fully researched as to why they don't want it. Like there has to be conviction for a home birth or a hospital birth, whichever direction you're going. And once you understand and are very clear and united with your partner on why that is, then you just completely act like it does not exist. And you just focus on this. But right. you, I, like, so in my classes, we learn about all about hospital birth and all about home birth. And naturally, people gravitate towards uh, non-hospital birth, you know. And I, and I really don't focus on birth centers because I don't think it's... That's a whole other conversation. It's like, for me, it's either like home birth or hospital birth, you know. Um, but people naturally gravitate towards a home, a home birth because of what they learn. And, and, and when they tap into their deepest desires and their needs, they see that every other decision about this process has been fear-based and a reaction. And going to the hospital is, is a reaction because they believe that that's where they're going to be the safest. And once they learn that that's actually where they're not the safest, where they're actually in the most danger, they refocus and <laughs> <laughs> well said <laughs> that's that's great yeah that that's very cool um well while we're on that topic of <laughs> the way that i would want to do it um so ultrasounds um pitocin uh epidurals what uh what about like i want to cover basically what i'm trying to stammer into here is what are some of the other uh, invasive procedures that are commonplace in a medicalized birth. Yeah. I've heard about, you know, clamping the umbilical cord or cutting it too soon and the baby's not done getting all the stem cells and all the goodies in there. Of course, C-sections, right? And the inherent right. issues with that. Um, you know, again, not to instill fear in people, but just perhaps to break, to break us out of this mold that like, that's the only safe way to do it. And you're saying actually, statistically, scientifically, logically, it's perhaps the the least safe yeah. way to do it. What are some of the other things that, that so, we want to be aware of with that route? Yeah, so just to be clear, an intervention is anything that does not look like a woman going into labor, birthing her baby, putting it to the breast, right? That's so as soon as you get a midwife, as soon as you get a doula, as soon as you get an OB, that's an intervention. As soon as you listen to the baby's heart tones, that's an intervention. Um, so what I call the gateway drug is the IV. <laughs> so when you check into a hospital, for example, you'll get hooked up to an IV of saline solution, dextrose, and this is supposed to keep you hydrated and your blood sugar regulated. And this is a practice from the knock them out, drag them out era where women were not allowed to eat because they were on twilight. So if you're on, you know, un if you're under, um, undigested food could come up, you could aspirate, you could die. So now it's just like, no one eats. Oh, like when they have you fast for anesthesia. Yeah. For, okay. Got yeah. It. And so now women who... Oh, wait, I never knew because we're taking cookie in for surgery tomorrow. And I was thinking, why do they do that? Yeah. Now I know. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the likelihood of a woman going under general anesthesia at a birth is so unlike... It's just rare. It's very rare. So um, I always encourage everyone to eat, right? You're in a marathon. Like you're, you do not starve yourself. Um, but the thing with the IV is that now your vein is accessible and it's easy access for anything else. Oh, you're uncomfortable? Here, let me give you a hit of this. Like, it's a little bit of that, a little bit of this. So 
that's the gateway drug is is the the IV. And um, what can happen is like hypovolemia. Women can actually drown. You know, women are assimilating that fluid differently. Every woman. So some women get edema, right? They get swelling of the legs like instantly, or the feet, or the hands, and then they have to take blood pressure blood pressure medication throughout the labor because now their blood pressure is going up from the edema. Um, so that's a very invasive procedure, but it seems totally innocent and like responsible, right? Because you're hydrating. Um, so that language is interesting, hydration. Um, the other things that come up are that are invasive are monitoring the baby's heart tones, you know, listening to the baby obsessively to make sure that everything is okay. And sometimes that's intravaginally with um, this catheter and then an electrode that's actually screwed into the baby's scalp. It's called an internal fetal monitor. What? Yeah. So when they're not... That's some matrix shit. What the <laughs> hell? God, humans are so weird. I know, super weird. We're so weird. I just... Okay, sorry. Go on. Yeah, so if they're not getting... How are people cool with this, though? Honestly, I'm just going to like have a moment here. Like People just don't know. Like I've been a doula at births where the nurse comes in and she's like, honey, I'm not getting a good reading with the external monitor. So do you mind if I put an internal monitor in? And she's like... The mom's like, sure. And I'm like... <laughs> texting the husband like uh, meet me in the bathroom we got to talk you know really quick and I go in and I'm like showing him photos of what an internal fetal monitor is he's like what do you mean they're gonna do that And I'm like go out there now like why are you guys not asking questions and this is why I have a rule now that you have to have taken a class before working with me because I, I don't want to be doing that in the moment and some doulas do that they're like trying to wave magic wands in the moment with people who have no background on terminology and it's difficult in a hospital setting. Yeah, I bet. Well, plus you have the pressure from you're 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 walking into a system that is already in perpetual motion, oh, right? Like it's, and it's to like perfectly... to try and intervene when that's already like steamrolling ahead has got to be very difficult. Well, yeah, I used to have to work so hard not to get kicked out of hospitals. So I was like texting, like I, you know, like winking. It's like a whole thing because as soon if as- I cough three times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like knock twice or whatever. And so, so then he went in there and he's like, we don't want to do the internal monitor. And she's like, why? He's like, it's dangerous. You're putting an electrode into my baby's scalp, you know, my head, the head of the baby. And she's like, we don't do anything here that's going to hurt you. And it's like- that language is, is the gaslighting is, is so crazy. And so they declined it in that moment. And he was like, do your job, listen to the baby's heart tones. If you need to use a stethoscope, old school, listen, like, but you're not putting that. So there are just so many procedures that are done, you know, just kind of coolly. And I don't want to say slyly, but hey, um, to the woman and no one asks questions. And then women find out later, you know, I do birth uh, trauma processing sessions with a lot of people who are like, I found out later that they did X, Y, Z and like no one even asked me. And I'm like, they did. They did. They said they were going to do it. And you just, you know, you, you didn't, you weren't, lis you weren't listening or you didn't have a conversation about it or you just trusted them that they were holding space for you, which you should trust whoever's holding space for you in that birth setting. But, you know, legally, I'm sure they told you we're going to do an internal monitor and you're like, okay. And then you don't know what's going on. You know, you should, sometimes there's a drape, you don't even see what's happening, you know? So that's an another, another invasive procedure. Um, the vaginal exams, incredibly invasive, you know, doing them every hour, going in, feeling the baby's head, the cervix, checking dilation, the IVs, all of it. It's, you know, and then we go into newborn procedures. I don't know if that's something you yeah, please. to happen please. to do. So, um, yeah. So as soon as the baby's out, if, you know, what could be very invasive and damaging is um, using forceps 
or a vacuum to extract the baby. And this is often used when a woman can't push because she's on an epidural. A vacuum? Yeah, it's like a little cap, looks like a yarmulke with a tube. Um, and yeah, they put it on the baby's head and they'll suction the baby out. Oh my God, what the fuck? <laughs> oh my it's God. Like a sci- okay, carry on. I just, gotta, I just gotta breathe through this. Um, and, you know, oh man, I'm just going down the Rolodex of the shit I've seen. Uh, with the vacuums, but this is why Aren't vitamin baby skulls super malleable and super soft? malleable. Like it doesn't seem like you would want to attach them into it and pull on it with no. suction. That seems no. like a bad and, idea. Um, and I experienced a fatality last year. My client's baby was um, died from the vacuum. So there's a dislocation that can happen of the baby's head. Right. Oh my God. Um, so yeah, it's 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 very serious. God so that's bless. why my people are like, are epidurals really that bad? I'm like, the amount of things that can happen by wanting to check out for a few hours, it's not worth it. Um, and you can do this, but anyway. So what? Ha- so the reason that vitamin K was designed, right? This blood coagulant was designed was because so many babies were having these violent births with forceps. C-sections, vacuums, and they would um, they would experience internal bleeding, you know, and they would hemorrhage internally. So they had to get these vitamin K shots immediately after the birth to coagulate the blood. From the, that's why that's how they started. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I always thought that was kind of cool. I'm like, yeah, bone density, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> vitamin K two, love it. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's oh, deceiving. Man. It's a blood coagulant with a lot of additives in it that. Um, you know, have side effects like fetal gasping syndrome is one side effect of vitamin K, the vitamin K shot, which the baby's lungs will actually seize and it can asphyxiate because of the coagulation. Yeah, right. All those blood vessels in the lungs are like right, eh, right, gum up. Right. Wow. So, but that's why then it became commonplace. And who, you know, it's so it's so subjective, right? Like, what is a violent birth that could cause the baby to bleed internally? Let's just give all of them vitamin K and you know, we'll be done with it. So that's another procedure that gets done to the baby, usually right after the birth. Um, Erythromycin, eye ointment, antibiotic eye ointment. You know, if the mother's gonorrhea or chlamydia positive and the baby passes through the vaginal canal, it can pick up that bacteria and it can cause blindness in the baby's eyes. So all it takes is for that to happen to one woman and one baby at some point in history, and then all hospitals just start doing it, you know? regardless of the woman's clean bill of health or whatever it is, they'll just automatically put it. So the thing in the hospital is they'll automatically do these things unless you decline and typically at a home birth, they don't do anything unless you request it. Got it. So that type of freedom and ease um, really helps the woman drop in to the experience, you know, when she's in a home birth setting. Um, So, you know, I just recommend that people learn about all of these things. Like, I mean, there are at least 12 invasive procedures that happen after the birth for the baby. Anything from aspirating the the nasal passage to vitamin K to circumcision. Um, And so we have to go through what is creating a birth plan. People are like, oh, birth plans, I showed it to my doctor and he laughed or I took a birth plan and then nothing happened, you know, and I'm like, well, did you really go in and learn you know, what everything was. The purpose of the birth plan is just to get on the same page as your partner. Ultimately, it's not because someone's standing there at the hospital at your home birth checking things off. It's because you two need to know what you want and what you're walking into and what the masculine's going to advocate for and how they're going to hold space and how they're going to protect and how they're going to be a gatekeeper. That's really the purpose of this plan. 
And so that's why the education in pregnancy is so important for both of them. Do you have like an online program or something? I do, do? yeah. I'm going to take it. Yay, it's called Uncovering Birth. And and it's good for the male. Too? Yeah, totally. Okay, yeah, cool. yeah. It's it's equally. I find this stuff just so fascinating. You know, I yeah. think because I just for so much of my earlier life, just was kids were not a plan at all. Yeah. A, a quite strong aversion, actually, to yeah. be honest. And so now I feel like, oh my god, I got all this catching up to do. You know. Yeah. Um, what about the the placenta you talked about, and also the umbilical cord uh, post birth? What what's the you know again like. We're, we're talking about ideal natural scenario and all of the things that are perhaps lower on the scale of ideal. Sure. What do we do with both of those and what are they? So when the baby's born, usually three, anywhere from three to 30 minutes after the baby's born, the placenta will be born. So the placenta will come out and then it remains attached to the baby through the umbilical cord. And that placenta is still passing blood through the cord to the baby. So you want that to stay attached and you want the baby to get all that blood back, right? Um, and what we see is that when babies get that cord clamped immediately, which was usually done in the knock them out, drag them out era so that the baby could do that gasp reflex and, and start breathing. It would initiate their breathing to cut off their oxygen supply, right? Because they're getting all their oxygen through the cord. So when they clamp it, then the baby's like, oh shit, got to breathe. Here we go. Oh my God, that's brutal. That's got to be so traumatic for yeah, the baby. Yeah, but you you had to do that with medicated babies. Uh, and I say medicated babies because women are medicated. I mean, fentanyl right. gets to your baby. Everything in your epidural goes to your baby. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's not like there's like your liver's filtering it out before it gets to the no, placenta. No, no, the it's, womb, it's right? in the cerebral spinal fluid. So it oh, gets my. absorbed into the brain and then goes into the bloodstream. So everything in your so epidural. So your baby's born high on fentanyl. Totally. Wow. And then they're like, I don't want to breastfeed. I don't want to latch. It's probably cool. impossible to correlate this, but I wonder if that has any influence on uh, a person's propensity toward opiate addiction. Yeah. There have been a lot of people who have really? hypothesized that and have looked into it. And, Interesting. Yep. Huh. Yeah. Wow. In an ideal, everything's going great home birth or wild birth. How is the... Um, placenta and um, umbilical cord dealt with? Yeah. So the baby's on the mom's chest, let's say over the left breast where the baby can hear the heart, uh, the placenta's in a glass bowl. What, let's does, say. It what does it look like? Forgive me. <laughs> the placenta? Yeah. Um, one side is the fetal side. It's the side that's been facing the baby and okay. it looks like this tree of life. Oh, and then okay. the other side, we call it the maternal side or the dirty Duncan because it's ugly, <laughs> is the one that's been attached to the wall of the uterus. And so, yeah, it comes out and it's usually a sixth of the size of the baby. Um, so we see small ones, big ones. We see ones that are shaped like hearts. I've seen ones that like look like an amoeba. I've seen ones that are just perfectly circular. You know, they all look so different and interesting how the mother's diet has actually, because I, I prepare placentas as well. And so, and I do placenta training. So I teach people how to do this, you know, women who want to do it after their birth and, um, prepare them mean like turn it into a supplement. Yeah. Turn it into a supplement, um, freeze it for, for smoothie preparation, um, postpartum, turn it into a broth, chop, really? it, chop it up with onions, oh eat God. it, <laughs> turn it Are into a pate. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this a, a an ancient practice, yes. like a forgotten practice? Yeah, that yeah. Was so that book, and... Placenta is a Forgotten Chakra, talks all about this. So oh, if people okay. want to learn more, it's a, it's a real, you could get through the book and 
two wow. days. It's really we're all like taking goji berries. Like, oh, it's a superfood. Like that sounds like a real superfood. Oh my food. god, I know it, it's amazing. So yeah, um, the placenta is out. And, you know, it's beautiful, and um, I recommend leaving that attached as long as it feels comfortable for you. Waiting at least until it stops pulsing and the baby gets all the blood back and you can do what's called a half lotus birth where you leave it attached for a few hours. And then when you feel energetically complete and you're ready for the baby to detach from what is its first mother, um, you decide how you're going to sever that bond. Is it going to be through cutting with metal scissors? Is it going to be through using a candle and butter, you know, burning it and cauterizing the ends? Um, what's that going to look like? And then what are you going to do with the placenta? Right? Are you going to consume it? Are you going to plant it in your garden with a new tree that's going to mark the growth of your baby? Like, what are the things that you would like to, are you going to donate it to someone who is educating people on this? I mean, there's so many options. Wow. Um, yeah. In a, in a, um, what do you call it? Knock them out, pull it out. What's the the knock them out, drag them out. The knock them out, drag them out birth. Uh, what is, is the umbilical cord and the placenta just kind of discarded as refuse and a yeah, biohazard they, bin and just. They say it goes into it? a bio, biohazard bin. They call it birth waste. I have seen them go into the bins. Um, I've also seen them get put into containers and taken away somewhere. <laughs> oh, to make, to make placental matrix to get injected into my hip. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. They get sent to Biogen X. What's that company uh, called in, in Maryland where they produce stem cell therapy right. um, medications and, right. and technologies. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I no, mean, if, not if, at all. If a woman elects to, you know, yeah, here, it's all yours. And I, I remember I interviewed uh, this guy, Matt Cook, who did some um, surgery on me uh, recently. And he was saying there are some pretty strict uh, regulations in terms of like, you know, they can't just sell, like a woman can't monetize the placenta or the hospital can't, there's some sort of regulations. Yeah. So they that. get donated to these companies for research and right. stem cell therapy research, let's say. And then maybe the, that company like donates something to the hospital, like, oh, you need to, oh, you okay. need to like <laughs> okay. redesign this new wing. It's got, you know, need new beds or I don't know. Uh, so I don't know how that indirect sale could there's work. There's not a direct like monetary transaction perhaps, but there is a, a synergistic yeah. Possibly covert relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. But, but most, most women learn this, then they make different decisions. Right. And some say, that's great. I would love for it to go to a stem cell therapy company. What's uh, with the placenta in, in a home birth scenario, again, like in everything's going great. Um, what's the most common, like you said, you do preparations of the placenta. What's the most common practice that you find? Uh, dehydrating the placenta, pulverizing it and encapsulating it. Oh, okay. um, in, in a raw method. So at 160 degrees for four hours and then at 115 degrees, 112 degrees for about 15 hours. Wow. So kind of like a desiccated liver yeah. or something, right? Yeah. A yeah. desiccated organ essentially? Yeah, totally. Um, wow. that, that, that's the typical preparation for organ meat. And so that's how mm -hmm. I've applied it to the placenta. But what I've been encouraging people to do is to take it raw, um, part of it. So keep a piece of it, you know, a portion of it raw. And then once that's over, you know, uh, you start taking the capsules. You can do tinctures with it where you um, steep it in grain alcohol for six weeks and you do, you make, you create like a mother tincture, like a homeopathic wow. from it. Um, you know, I don't really so recommend cold foods postpartum. You know, you've just um, created all this space in the body and there's a lot of wind. You know, if you're looking at, at it through the Chinese model, uh, Chinese medicine model and perspective. So I don't really recommend a lot of cold foods, more warming, grounding, nourishing foods. But I think for the sake of consuming it raw, if a smoothie is the only way you can do it, then, you know, do that for a few days. 
Wow. And what, uh, what are some of the nutrients present in a placenta? All of the pregnancy hormones that you were producing are in the placenta. So if you want to look at it as like a slow tapering off, because as soon as that baby's out, your body stops producing those hormones. And so now you're getting it kind of like on a slow drip after the birth, a lot of iron and, and stem cells. Have you heard of colostrum? Well, it's been one of my top superfoods for the past decade. It's likely one of the best tasting and definitely most nutrient dense and novel foods on the planet. My personal colostrum of choice has always been Sir Thrival. They sent me their three new flavors of colostrum this week, and of course I immediately opened all three jugs and made a drink of each with only spring water as the base, and they were insanely good. Just rich, creamy, delicious. I'm now, of course, obsessed. The new flavors are enhanced with organic cacao powder, strawberry juice powder, and organic vanilla. And I got to say, even their plain, unflavored colostrum was already addictively delicious, so the new flavors are, for me, just an added bonus. What I like about colostrum, in addition to it being such a delicious ingredient in just about any smoothie you can dream of, is that it also provides protein and immune factors in their natural, whole food form. So much so, in fact, that it's often referred to as immune milk. And for those of you that like studies, the studies have shown that colostrum is three times more powerful than the vaccine against flu virus. So this might just be nature's best pandemic prevention supplement. Plus, it also aids digestion and is often used in cases of leaky gut, IBS, Crohn's, and ulcerative colitis. And Sir Thrival has set the standard for the highest quality USA-sourced grass-fed colostrum available. You can think of Surthrival colostrum as a supercharged protein powder, but more functional and sophisticated. But not so sophisticated that kids won't eat it. In fact, kids actually love it. And when I have one, this will likely be the first food they eat after mom's milk. You can get your colostrum now at surthrival.com and use the code LUKE for 10% off your order. That's S-U-R-T-H-R-I-V-A-L. Surthrival, like survive and thrive at the same time. Surthrival.com. And again, the code is Luke. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. So cool. This stuff is so fascinating to me. Thank you for thank you for sharing all of this. Yeah. Have you seen in in post-COVID, uh, you know, our lives have changed so much and so Wait, many bizarre post, it's ways. Over? <laughs> it is for me. It's been over since I think March 2020 for me. But uh you know, society has changed. Have you seen, I've seen an increase in people like into home gardening and homesteading and prepping and mm -hmm. just general autonomy. Have you seen um, an increase in interest in doulas and alternative ways of totally. having birth? Yeah, totally. I mean, since the beginning of the pandemic, I started getting a lot of contact from people who were like, the, the, ta the tagline was like, I'm contacting you because I, I I would have never thought that I'd birth it out of the hospital, but like I I need to explore this now. Like, what do I do? You know. Um, so it's always like, okay, take a let's take a class. <laughs> Just let's take a class. Start here, educating yourself on this process. And um, yeah, and so people have really shifted toward an alternative approach to their experience. Um, and. And mostly because they learned that, you know, if the woman goes into labor, goes to the hospital, she does her her rapid test um, and she tests positive, then her partner can't come in and then she's oh alone. Oh my God. So it, it, being alone in that moment will go against every conviction she has or previously had about 
COVID, you know, and that's powerful. And that's wow. really, you know, that's disorienting for a lot of people, but hey, you know, do you want to be alone during this process in the lion's den? Damn, girl. Have you experienced uh, any, you did mention that uh, one one baby didn't make it. Have you experienced similar traumatic situations where things went haywire in a home birth and everyone needed to rush to the hospital and rethink it? No. Um, I've been part of four transfers, uh, meaning we transferred from home to the hospital and they were all elective. And, you know, one of them, the woman could not stop vomiting. Just the hormones were a lot. Everything she would drink um, and eat would come up. And so we put her on an IV at home because it was just, she was getting visibly dehydrated and her contractions started slowing down because she was getting so weak. And the IV did start to cause some swelling. So we were like, all right, got to get to the hospital. When when she's at home and needs an IV, would the midwife be administering mm -hmm. that? Yeah, the midwife oh, okay. will do the IV. She can. There's a she she basically brings everything from you know what you'd have at a birth center to the home. Her oxygen, oh, okay. her antibiotics, all those things. Um, anything for suturing after the birth. If the mother's perineum tears, for example, she'll take care of all that. Um, are there with the perineum tears? Are there practices or things um, that a woman can do before or during birth that would make that less likely to occur? Yeah, um, resting in a squat. So rather than sitting in a chair like this, you're just always in a resting squat. Um, oh. You're adding elasticity to the perineum. Um, you can do perineal massage, uh, which I recommend the partner does, or you have someone do it. You can do it yourself. It's just like it's hard to really go to those edges that you need to go to on your own sometimes. So, yeah, you know, it's helpful if you have the assistance um, and then consuming a lot of fats in your diet. Um, so yeah, but nothing's ever gone haywire at a home birth. Um, however, I have heard of, you know, certain situations where something unexpected happened, right? Like the water breaks and the cord comes out, you know, the cord's hanging. It's still attached. Everything's fine, but now you have a cord prolapse and, you do have to get a C-section at that point. There's no way to like push push the cord back up. And, oh wow! You know, so you know that's that's not something that you can plan for. You know, but these things of like suddenly everyone stopped breathing and we don't know what happened. Like that kind of stuff doesn't happen at a home birth. Um, typically, a baby's heart tones will go through the roof in either direction, you know, up or down, depending on what drugs the mother has received. You know, that's typically the biggest culprit for these emergency C-sections of babies having distress with their breathing is a mother who's been medicated. From what I hear, it seems like uh, in, in the medical model of birth that C-sections are just like <laughs> totally normalized. And, and I've heard people say that, you know, for a doctor delivering a baby, like they don't want to sit there throughout a long labor. So they're going to just pull the plug and recommend yeah. or just go ahead and do a C-section when it might not actually be medically necessary because they just want to get home and eat dinner. You know, yeah, totally. I mean, the training for OBs is so different because they learn on women who are typically on epidurals already. So they don't actually ever get the opportunity to learn about natural birth and how labor unfolds and to read a woman's behavioral signs and emotional signposts and to look at the animal body in labor. They don't get that opportunity. So they really are not trained in natural birth. They're surgeons. And they are trained to find red flags, whether they're real or made up, and act accordingly. 
and midwives learn on unmedicated women. So they really understand that it is such a wide range, but they learn how to read the emotional signposts, behavioral signposts, physical signposts. Like myself, for example, like I don't need to ever do a vaginal exam to know where a woman is at in labor. Like behaviorally, she tells me everything by what she says, her her eye contact, um, the way her body's moving, I can see. Okay, she's probably seven centimeters dilated at this point. Really? Yeah. So that's something that we learn in the class. And that's something that I like to teach partners. So I'm like, you don't need to be like, who do we call? Call the doula, call the, like, you're just like, oh, I'm watching her. Okay, we're good. Like, she's doing this now. I give you charts if you want. If you're like, you know, some some people really like to be like, all right, we're here now. We're here now. I'm kind of watching this. And it's all about observing the woman. She'll tell you everything if you let her. Um, and so, yeah, OBs really don't have that opportunity to learn. And so I've seen OBs resort to C-sections when they could have just had some more patients. Um, and also they don't know how to resolve a lot of these, not complications, but maybe minor complications where maybe the baby's shoulder is stuck on the mother's pubic bone. It's called shoulder dystocia. And I've seen OBs just say like, oh, C-section, like oh, get her into the OR. We got to get, this baby's not coming out. It's stuck. You know, and then I've seen midwives, like she's like, all right, all hands on deck. You grab her, flip her over. And like, I'm I'm turning the woman one way while the midwife is corkscrewing the baby the other way, like opening a bottle, you know? Wow. And then we get the baby out. So um, that type of training is just so different. So I, I feel much more confident personally being in the hands of a woman who has this knowledge of yeah. the body. Yeah. I think it's important too, because I, I just get so pissed at the medical system about so many things, but it's like you know, it's, it's a systemic kind of problem, right? It's yeah. like the, in, it's not that every OB is uh, disconnected or doesn't care or, yeah. you know, people within the system, it's, it's like a hierarchical system in a pyramid, right? Oh, Where yeah. it, it's like the practices are sort of developed at the top and then trickle down and become normalized. However bizarre they seem to someone like me, but your average person who's participating in a birth wants it to go as well as possible. Yeah. Right. It's, totally. it's not like everyone in there are part of a satanic cult and you don't want to torture this poor woman and her, her newborn. It's yeah. just kind of like the system and everyone goes along with it. I mean, they have no idea that they were trained within the framework of that cult, but they were, and their intentions are typically good. You know, they want, so within, within their framework, they're doing the best they can with the tools that they have. And that is not typically congruent with what is actually true and safe and in a frequency of love for the woman, you know? It's interesting that I don't hear, and maybe I'm just, I'm not listening to the right people, but, you know, you hear um, from a feminist perspective that that we live in this patriarchy and so many things that are wrong with our society um, are at the hands of, you know, toxic masculinity or just men being in control for so many centuries. I don't see as much vitriol for the male dominated medical system as I would like to, right? It's like they're. I don't think men should be assisting with birth. Okay. Oh, tell us about that. At all. At all. But you know, I'm like, as I'm as we're having this conversation, I'm like, so much of a woman's power seems to be just in her discernment and ability to make decisions for her family and her body. Like all of that power through the medical side of it is just being siphoned away from her, yeah. and she's just like kind of a victim and treated as someone who's ill when that's actually the most powerful time of her life. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I, th I think it's so bizarre that a man would want to be a gynecologist. Like, 
or I do too. Or an OB, like <laughs> and, and, it would be so awkward. So, so I went to a male OB in high school once, and I was like, I am just like I'm traumatized. <laughs> like it was totally clinical and sterile, and like I've not been to an OB since, and that was like I don't know, twenty years ago. I and I um, I mean, a, a gynecologist since, um, but. <sighs> I've, I've heard them say to women, you know, this is going to hurt a lot. Like, why do you want to do this? And I'm like, how could they possibly know? Like, how does that make any sense? You know, they, they have not experienced this and um, they're not space holders for this. They're not equipped to do that. You know, they don't offer you the, the, the love and the support and, and, and this containment, you know, and <sighs> You know, when I when I look at, at certain dynamics, like certain couples, I see the partner, the masculine, standing by and watching his woman like just com- get completely abused by not only nurses but this o- typically male OB, and that's not only creating this inner t- turmoil for him, where it's like he couldn't protect his family, he 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 was powerless, right? And now there's been this like desecration, and then the woman is like not in the moment, but later they've, you know, revealed to me, like, he just let this happen to me. You know, like my man was not there or like my partner was not there for me. And that creates a lot of turmoil in their relationship. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really, oh man, it's so just, it's so disempowering. It is so disempowering. And, um, and I don't really find it to be any different with female OBs, to be honest, you know, um, and a lot of the female OBs I've worked with, they don't even have their own kids. And I also think that like, that's something that I know people feel very differently about this, but I do believe that when you're doing this work, there has to be that shared experience um, that can really assist you in holding space for the woman. Absolutely. I mean, I think about um, if someone was to venture into a plant medicine ceremony and the person facilitating and never taking the medicine, <laughs> you know, you would never like that would. Oh, man, that's that's would, a great way to put it. You'd never do that, right? Yeah. Like, I want someone. To, how many times have you done this? Okay, right. Oh, yeah. eight hundred journeys. Oh, okay, cool. Like, right. I'm safe. There's a, there's a container. Like, you know the realms that we're going to, and I I haven't experienced it yet, but I perceive yeah. that the birth realm is probably not that dissimilar to those realms. I you would know? say it's yeah. Uh, what's it what's it like i had an experience where i went i went hunting when i first got here to texas and uh and i shot a wild boar Mm -hmm. did a podcast all about it of course um and when that experience i mean it's a a long story and i won't get into it because i've already done a show about it but the moment when that happened there was this etheric strange slowing of time and this energy that came over me that was psychedelic is not the right word because that implies you're seeing visuals or something but there was um a tangible energy in the air that was so profoundly moving and intense like the moment that animal died and i mean i was crying and just you know breathing deeply and just it was strange it was super super far out and in that moment I remember thinking, this is the same energy as when a baby's born. And I just felt like I just knew that, even though I've never been present for one other than my own. But it was just such a profoundly spiritual, just deeply innate sense. It was heavy. 
Yeah. It was so moving. Yeah. What's it like for you as someone who sat in so many births? Do you see a correlation in that or that kind of medicine-y space? I mean, when a, when a woman's in the final stages of labor and the baby's coming out, I mean, is there, is oh, there yeah. an energy there? Is there? Absolutely. And, and I would argue that you've gone through this many times, you know, you've, you've, you've entered this physical plane many times, right? you know, so you're right. very familiar with what it is to see this take physical shape, right? To go from this 5D into the 3D. Like, that's what we all want. Like, we all say, like, we want to get to the 5D, right? But like, we actually, we want to be here because this is where all of the magic happens. This is where the experience happens. This is where the arrows happens. This is like where the lessons are learned, where the pleasure is felt, where the pain is felt, you know? So it's like, you recognize that coming in and the leaving, which is the same. Right. You know, that's the sense I got, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it was like, it was cognition, but it was just a knowing. I was like, oh, this is that space. Yeah. And this board, right. right, Is that they're, they're transitioning. And I recognize that space and it is so moving because of what it is to get that gift to come into the 3d, you know, and we recognize how, how sacred that is. And so when we, when I'm at birth, yeah, of course, you know, it it is, I I cry every time. You know, like every time she's, she's, she's getting close. We know she's about to start pushing her breathing changes. She's bearing down. She's going through this transformation. I start to feel that, you know, and, and everyone in the room starts to feel that. And we're all holding that space. And like, I see everyone moving, you know, and I've even seen partners like start to sway (laughs) and the mid, you know, the midwife is moving and she's focused. And like, if there's siblings, there, other children there, they start to get into that space. Everybody gets into that space and they feel that. And then the baby's out and there's this release. It's like this, you know, it's really. How many births have you uh, been present? I don't know. I don't know. Tons. Uh, Everyone asks me that. I mean, you think like over a hundred or? Yeah, maybe like around 120. Hmm. I was doing about four or five a month for six years. And then, I don't know, now I'm doing about one a month and doing it. I mean, I'm attending, being present yeah. for. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Everyone asks and I should know, but I wow. don't think about it that wow. way. What an interesting life you have. <laughs> really? You know, I mean, think about all the ways in which someone could spend their time and energy and yeah. passion. Yeah. That's a very unique way, I think. I mean, <laughs> maybe it's not, you know, the whole human experience. I guess that's probably normal. There are, you know, there are people out there that are present for that experience a lot more than others. But I just think about, I always kind of put myself in the shoes of a guest, like, oh, what would that be like? like Man, that's wild. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Uh, how you mentioned how resentment can build um, in a birth situation in which the, the masculine uh, partner is not able to, for whatever reason, advocate for the mother giving birth. And there's um, kind of some resentment that whether spoken or unspoken that develops out of that. What are some of the other reasons you think why uh, a birth experience between a couple can start to create conflict and separation after the fact? So, I mean, it all starts during the pregnancy. I mean, it might even come from preconception, you know, who knows, but what I can see tangibly, um, going on is that like if the if the non-gestational parent you know the partner is not participating in the education process right they're not they're not creating that containment during the pregnancy that the mother needs so she can fully surrender like a woman should not be heavy in decision making during the birth like 
she ha- she's the oracle. She's decided how it's going to go, and it's really about the masculine, you know, taking the action to to make it so, you know, and to really support that. And so when that's not there, then the woman is in this kind of decision-making space. She's stepping in the masculine space. She's not surrendering. And that is incredible. That can be incredibly frustrating. And that's really not how it should be for her. Um, And what I see happen a lot of when there's no completion, there's no resolution that comes out of the education process. A woman will subject herself to birthing in a hospital when she didn't really want to, because that is like the one thing that the partner could like not let go of was this idea that like, it is irresponsible to be out of a hospital for this birth. And so that duality that exists that, I mean, that can just blow up, you know, between two people, because if the woman has an unsavory experience, which she most likely will in the hospital, then it would be, it's attributed to his lack of containment for her and lack of trust in her oracle truth. Wow. What about the other side of that where, because I think an important distinction there is you're, you're saying the woman is the oracle and she's feeling into how she wants this experience to play out, conveys her preferences to her partner, and then her partner drops the ball and doesn't facilitate it yeah. happening according to her wishes. What about when you have the supporting partner to the mother and their control issues move in and start superseding what the mother's own intuition and body relationship to self is indicating that they want. See what I'm getting at? Like when you have the, you know, the father, for example, that's being all super controlling and trying to dictate what that woman's going to do or not do and how the birth is going to go when it's not in fact their body that, it's all happening. Oh yeah, too, no, it, it it creates a lot of turmoil, a lot of turmoil, you know. And I've and like just at the twenty fifth hour, women have come to me and are just like, I like what you know, what what can I do? Like, is there any way you know to get this to change? And I'm, it, it's so much internal work that that masculine has to do, um, you know, and and um, and then it starts to crop up like throughout postpartum and in the parenting journey, and the co parenting can become very tumultuous when that was not resolved. I mean, the birth is an opportunity. The pregnancy is that opportunity to resolve that, which might be systemic in the relationship anyway. And this is a, a beautiful opportunity for both of them to dispel their fears because that controlling behavior is just a reaction. It's a fear reaction. It's a trauma response to whatever, maybe their own birth, you know? So I yeah, always totally. invite people to, totally. to go to the, to revisit part of the homework in, in my course is revisiting your own birth. Um, for, you know, for both of them. And, you know, some people say, I can't do that. I don't have, you know, I don't, my parents are no longer with us. I, you know, how do I access that? So it's, you know, through meditation and through journaling and perhaps through hypnotic regression or, you know, different, or just talking about memories with me and whatever, you know, comes up for them. And so that is really the first step to figuring out where those fears might be coming from. Um, awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, it's 3.53. We got to get you to the Austin airport. Yeah, soon. soon. Uh, I have one last question for you, though. Actually, it's three and one. Uh, who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your work mm. or your life that you might you might share with us? Yeah. So, um, wow. Okay. So, I'll, the first one that comes to mind is Amanda Francis. You're familiar with her. No. Uh-huh. She um, she teaches manifestation, and she works with money trauma. And um, I was really resistant to her when I first was introduced to her. This was a few years ago. And 
I was like, you know, I, I worked through, I really went into that resistance around her and I finally committed to doing the course. And, you know, for me, the money trauma is so important because that is the root chakra. And so that's really what I was committed to accessing and understanding. And so when I went through this process of reconnecting and healing the root chakra, um, everything else opened up for me, every other possibility um, opened up for me in all areas of my life. And so I really, I really attribute so much of the awareness that I have now um, to her wow, and her cool. teachings. I want to check that out. <laughs> yeah. She's incredible. That sounds right up my alley. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And my parents, absolutely. I mean, just um, the framework that they've given me either consciously or unconsciously is, is what I chose. I mean, I chose them, you know, coming in. And so, and so I really, I really attribute so much of, of um, my growth um, in this present moment to, to reflecting on what they have provided thus far and continue to do so every day. I mean, they're amazing mirrors for me and, and then my, my daughter. Yeah. Are your parents uh, understanding of what you do and supportive? They're incredibly supportive. Wow. Uh, they, I mean, <laughs> it was like every, everything since childhood. It's like the rubber in college. I was like, I'm leaving college for a year. I'm going, I need to learn. Like I, I, I have this conflict with eating meat and like the only way that I can continue to do so is if I like go and learn how to make sausage and kill sheep. And like, I like, that's the only way that I'm allowed to eat meat is if I would kill them on my own. <laughs> so it was like, one day they were like, you're leaving college, like your liberal arts college to do what? And for, okay, fine. What do you need? How can we hold space for you? You know, and they just have always believed in me and having that has, has just been, I know, I know it's such a blessing, um, but it's been monumental. Oh, that's interesting. I, I relate to that too, with the aforementioned uh, hunting trip. Yeah. It was the same kind of motivation. Just like, I need to, if I'm going to do this, I need to connect to it totally. more fearlessly. Totally. And I'm, and I'm like that with. So you killed sheep and made sausage out of them? Yeah. And, and cheese and pecorino. And, Damn, um, <laughs> yeah. It's been some time. I, I, I went back court. a few times. It's a, it's a small farm in Abruzzo, um, wow. a tiny mountain town. And yeah. And I told him, I was like, Nuncio, this is what I need to do. This is where I'm at. You know? And he's like, all right, if you want to work, I'll teach you. Wow. You know? So interesting. And then with your daughter, uh, how old is she? She's six. She's six. So she's obviously aware of your your profession and what you're into. Totally. Yeah. How, how does she respond to your being a doula and an educator in, in birth? She loves it. Um, like her idea of play, you know, like she'll stuff her shirt with like towels or t-shirts and she'll walk around and <laughs> pretend she's having a baby and like she squats and then she wants me to catch the baby and then she wants to oh breastfeed and... Um, she helps me prepare placentas and she helps me with the encapsulation. And, um, you know, I, every, I have photos of her birth. And so periodically, and then definitely on her birthday, we look at all the photos. I have a book that I've printed, you know, of the, the experience. And so she looks through it and she understands wow, what went powerful. down and, um, and yeah, she loves it. And she has no, yeah. she has not expressed an interest in like wanting to do this kind of work. But I do see that this um, aspect of her that that is so drawn to justice is really like activated when we talk about this experience and um, and this caretaking that comes through in her, you know, and when the kittens, the, I have wild kittens and wild roosters and chickens and all kinds of animals in my garden that do not belong to me. They have just all, really? they all congregate in my garden. Um, and yeah, she's like, she's 
she's always caretaking them and she's created her own system with them. And <laughs> Really? Yes. That's so cool. That's cool. I find it interesting. Kelly, uh, your friend Kelly Brogan, yeah. when she was on the show a couple of weeks ago, was telling me how she has chickens. And I'm like, you live in Miami. Like when I've been to Miami, I'm not, I don't see any houses where you could have wild chickens and stuff in your yard. I guess there's other neighborhoods I'm not aware of. I there. live in Little Haiti and they've all, they're all wild. I mean, there's like 12 wild roosters and really? then there's all these hens and they just fly in and they just live around my property and they lay eggs and sometimes I'll enjoy the eggs and then sometimes not. And there's wow. baby chicks and cats so and cool. iguanas and all kinds of stuff. I got a friend on. that eats iguanas. I know people who eat iguana. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've Daniel Vitalis, he's a, he's a big hunter, hunter gatherer, mm -hmm. and uh, and whatnot. And yeah, he goes down to um, to Florida and and hunts them and puts them in a cooler and takes them back yeah. and makes tacos out of them in Maine. Wow, he says well, they're delicious. When you when they and become... it's highly encouraged because they're invasive and totally you know, cause a lot of problems down there. So totally, yeah. Just people see that opportunity when the when the temperature drops in Miami, they freeze. Iguanas stop moving. They go oh. into paralysis, and so then they'll collect them and. So that's a thing down there too? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I mean, I've never tried reptile. <laughs> I, like there's certain things. I haven't either. But you think like the funny thing with food like that is I'll eat a lobster. It's like right. a giant cockroach. And it's like, oh, it's delicious. Don't even think about it. I'm like, ew, an iguana. You know, it's just funny how we build these um, sort of perspectives based totally. on nothing. You know, it's funny. <laughs> yeah. Same with birth. Well, uh, thank you so much for making the time to come out. I've been wanting to meet you for a while. And, um, and I want to tell people, tell people, we'll put it in the show notes at lukestory.com slash yeah. birth, but tell people your Instagram. Cause I think that's a really like, that's how I found you. And I was like, oh, this woman is awesome. I have to talk to her. And there's a lot of not only like educational stuff and that, but there's a lot of beautiful photography that's pretty, I mean, I want to say graphic, like there's something profane about it, but it's like, man, if you want to like see what birth is really like, especially in a home setting, that's a good place to do it. Yeah. Um, Ayla Cuenca birth. Cool. And I also have a telegram channel. Oh, you um, do? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to, and it's all about this stuff. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to join your channel. Ayla Cuenca birth. I get a little more free on there. Um, <laughs> yeah. My, my Instagram is like love and light rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> And then my Telegram group is like, we're all going to die. Do something. <laughs> you know, it's pretty brutal. Yeah. My whole yeah. thing is like, I, I post a lot more about legislation and, and things like that around okay. birth and, you know, and then my website, I have a lot of free resources on my website. Cool. And uh, if people wanted to either go through some of your education or work with you, they would do that through your site? Yeah. Or you can go to uncoveringbirth.com and oh, then you okay. can access the courses there. And there's a, there's a doula birthkeeper training there as well. So if you want to get more specific with what you're offering and you want to go more into advocacy and informed consent and then, you know, training, training partners in this process, then I would highly recommend um, the birthkeeper and doula training. Awesome. All yeah. right. We'll put all that in the show notes. Yeah. And thank you so much for coming by. Thank you for having me. Yep. Well, I don't know about you lot, but that was an extremely informative and inspiring conversation for me, man. I feel so blessed to be able to meet people like Ayla and to extract their wisdom. If after hearing this conversation with Ayla, you want to check out her online birthing course, you can find it at lukestory.com slash Ayla. And she's offered you a sweet 20% off by using the code Luke20. That's lukestory.com slash Ayla, E-Y-L-A. And the code is Luke20. It's a very cool course. I've been enjoying it immensely myself, and I hope you do too. All right, next week's episode is super hot, literally. Um, it's episode 409. It's called The Science of Sun, Blue Light, Flicker, 
and photon sauna therapy with Brian Richards of Sauna Space. Now, I know a lot of you, like me, geek out on light, uh, the blue light, the red light, the saunas, safe sun exposure, the flickering light in your homes, how to deal with devices. Uh, next week's episode has got you covered. I think it's a couple hours long. I mean, we were doing demos on the video with our phones and how to hack the blue light on them and all kinds of cool stuff. So if you're a light geek like me, you definitely want to check out 409 next week. And if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, check it out anyway, because this is information that could really benefit your life. I've got an upcoming event at Paleo FX here in Austin, Texas, April 29th through May 1st to grab yourself some tickets and come hang out with me and all my Austin buddies there. Well, actually, buddies from all over the world will be there. Go to lukestory.com slash events. And by the way, that's a good link to have because uh, any workshops or talks that I'm giving will always be available there. And last, it is last, but it's definitely not least, let's give a shout out to our sponsors. We've got Upgraded Formulas, Organifi, Blue Blocks, and Surthrival, four incredible brands that I am so happy to support. And uh, I'm so happy that they support me so I can keep doing this damn show. All right, I'll be back next week with number 409. See you then.